This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Friday. You made it. Yeehaw. Many are out traveling already. I'm noticing a lot of... Uh, a lot of, you know, trailers, campers, police, boats. Police on the freeway. Police on the freeway. Saw four people pulled over this morning. Like, oh, wow. boy. Up an Adam, police there's a lot of There's a high profit yield today yes. on the No, it's they're, the roads. They're, they're making the roads safe, man. That's right. That's right. Making it's the not roads revenue. Safe. It's not revenue. This is a deadly time, apparently, for uh, traffic accidents. A lot of accidents during this weekend, apparently. Hmm. Scary. So be careful. Drive safely. Make it a great uh, weekend. We got a great show for you. We will be talking about free speech on campuses. Um, and because that, that was, you know, Ann Coulter made it, had a big deal, went down, tried to speak at Berkeley, mm-hmm. was invited to speak. Then a lot of uh, protests. And then she wasn't going to speak. Then she was going to speak, but they couldn't. Guarantee her they safety. Guarantee her safety or the safety of the campus. So, is that what's going on here this morning? Because I see lots of people gathering, uh, and they look yeah, they I look think, a little flustered. That's a graduation. They're graduating oh, from high school. Yeah. I see. We have like four of them today. Yeah, I saw that list. Four graduations. Congrats so basically, to that. you need to have gotten here by six in the morning, and you can't leave until six at night. Yeah, I don't see what the problem is. Everyone else is complaining about parking on campus, but I'm. Fine. That's great. Just show up super early. Yeah. No one's here. Yeah. I'm more intrigued just looking out the windows, seeing the uh, variety of what people think when they hear graduation. What does that mean by what you dress? By what you can wear, yeah. How you, what you wear to the graduation. And have you ever seen more relieved parents? Oh, they look <laughs> just happy. Just... I never thought this day would be here. <laughs> They're my, so relieved. My mom kept saying that when I graduated. Yeah. Like she never thought it would I'm happen. I'm looking at her like... I. This I was, was okay, pretty much Mom. set from like junior <laughs> high. I was graduating. But Terry, I don't think you were there yesterday when Matt and I were staring down on all the people going yeah. into the Marriott Center. And I had the thought, wouldn't it be creepy? Uh, we would find it creepy if somebody down there was just planting their feet, looking yeah. right just up at us. us. That would be weird. Yeah. yeah. But when we do it, it's fine. It's totally fine. But I think it's because we are up, we're above. Mm. We look down upon them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's better to look down upon people. It's always better to, to have the high ground. Yeah. If you read The Art of War, it always talks about the high ground. Really? So, yeah, keep the high ground. <laughs> I think it's in The Art of the Deal, too. That's yeah. mm-hmm. um, Got a lot to talk about. By, by the way, speaking of um, looking down, mm. uh, people – I think the Democrats cannot figure out what's going on. When? Well, they don't – they're still trying to figure out how Trump got elected. Yes. But now they're trying to figure out how, how a Montana congressman – Oh yeah, beats up and throws down a politician or a, a reporter, and then is elected the next day. They, they the Democrats can't understand well, this. Part of it is two thirds of the state probably voted beforehand, yeah, early voting, <laughs> and you can't change your vote. So yeah. there's that, and then there's the just the general thought of uh, we don't like the media. It's kind of the message coming out of Republican areas and Republican groups nowadays. And now you have a Republican take on a reporter and he's like a folk hero now. Yeah. Now he's like, you got him. But the audio from that episode was pretty, pretty abrupt. Yeah. It was pretty incredible. So and then um, the Fox News reporter saying, oh yeah, he had his hands around his neck and yeah. threw him to the ground. 
We'll talk about that in a bit as well. So we'll talk free speech. We'll also get to the headlines. Today, by the way, is a special day because it's uh, National Don't Fry Day. Yeah. The day to raise awareness of all the risks of overexposure to the sun. Uh, put on some lotion, people. Well, now I'm going to fry some bacon just because you told me not to. Is this is this the sound of you by the pool? Yeah. <laughs> so not by the pool, sunbathing. Only, mm. But only when I lather myself in butter first. Oh, yeah. As Kramer did on Seinfeld. And he looked like a roasted turkey. And then Newman wanted to eat him. Oh, scary. Um, so today's the day to remember sun protection, sun safety practices. It's also paper airplane day. Mm. Make a paper airplane. By the way, a great idea at a graduation. Oh, yeah. Everyone loves that when you see the lone paper airplane come out of the upper deck. <laughs> and hit your boy. Yeah. And then the principal, all right, who did that? Who did that? <laughs> who threw that? Suspension for everyone. I bet they'd yell, Simpson. <laughs> it's always a Simpson. That is the type of thing that would be blamed on me. Yeah, totally. So we'll get to all of that. But first, let's do the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention the to? The forecasters are correct, and there are warmer than average waters in the tropical Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean and a weak El Nino conditions this summer. The 2017 hurricane season could be an active one. There's a potential for a lot of Atlantic storm activity this year, says National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Administ- Administrator Ben Friedman, talking to the AP on Thursday. The NOAA's forecast calls for 11 to 17 named storms, 5 to 9 hurricanes, 2 to 4 expected to be major. The long-term season averaged 12 named storms and 6 hurricanes, with 3 major ones. Tropical storms are classified as having sustained winds of at least 39 miles an hour, while hurricanes have sustained winds at at least 74. The Atlantic storm season lasts six months. It officially starts June 1st, so we can have a little party to wow, that is celebrate a, that. But that they're, is looking, a big storm. they're looking for uh, 11 to 17 named storms. Oh, really? So five seven, to nine uh, hurricanes. How fun would that be to name storms? Well, they just kind of go alphabetical. And I know, but they, they shouldn't go off a mail. list. you got to yeah. be creative. They have a list. Uh, other news, constantly checking the calorie burn on your burned on your fitness tracker to determine what you eat. Then tuck it away and read on because you might not want to indulge in that second piece of cake. That's out of mm. a report from the NPR that cardiologist and professor uh, Uwan Ashley responded to his tech-savvy patients' frequently frequent requests to analyze their wristband data by conducting a study to test their wristband accuracy. He took a look at seven of the most popular fitness tracking models with his colleagues at Stanford and, and compared the two metrics, heart rate and calorie burn statistics, with the medical tests doctors utilize. While the heart rate data measured up well to the EKG tests, uh, most were about 5% off. Oh, wow. So it's close. I mean, that's close enough. Calorie trackers are nowhere near accurate uh, compared to indirect cli- uh, uh, calorimetry, I guess mm. they call it, a highly sophisticated method of tracking metabolism used in doctor's offices. Wristband tracking outputs for calories burned were anywhere from more than 20 to 93% inaccurate. In wow. Counting your calories. People are checking these inaccurate counts, and they think, hey, I've earned a muffin, or how about an extra scoop of ice cream? And they're I actually sabotaging. I do not know why I'm gaining weight. weight. Yeah. So you're telling me when my elliptical tells me that I burned 1,000 calories yeah, no. after 30 minutes? No. Darn it. No, it's a, it's a lie. Yes. Yeah, 
not happening. Yeah, so another news, dozens of guns and thousands of dollars in jewelry were stolen from an RV in Salem, Oregon, and the victims say one suspect is still on the loose. Paul Shaw says he is still having a hard time wrapping his head around just how much of his stuff was stolen. He and his wife reportedly lost close to $100,000 in valuables and nearly 30 stolen handguns that are still out there somewhere. Shaw said his wife realized that they had been robbed when she got back to their RV at the Hee Hee Ali Ali uh, <laughs> Resort Wednesday. It's an oh. RV. RV no. Oh, that's basically. fun to say. That's yeah, great. yeah, that's pretty much why I'm reading this. They were, uh, valuables were stolen. They knew they were, bo- the people were both at work. Police arrested 19-year-old Raceland Jensen Baker after uh, finding a handgun and some of the stolen jewelry in his car. There's another person out there on the loose. But these people had 30 handguns. Wow. And like uh, thousands of dollars in jewelry in their RV. Yeah, and? That's what I can't wrap my head security. around. security. It's just 30 <laughs> handguns. What do you... That's... And they're all still out war. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and finally, a thief was publicly shamed on Facebook by a restaurant he was trying to burglarize. E.L. Barbecue in Jackson, Mississippi, posted a surveillance video of the culprit and said that the uh, video of the break-in was hysterical. He fell through multiple areas of our ceiling while walking around up there. He crawled around on the floor like he was in Mission Impossible. The crook even made himself dinner. He pulled a whole bunch of food, ribs, steak sandwiches, soda. (laughs) He cooked himself five steak sandwiches on the grill, opened a bag of fries, turned on the grill, turned on the fryer, sat up there on the line for 15 to 20 minutes to cook himself dinner. He apparently tried to break a security monitor, but not the hard drive, which stored all the surveillance video, which they then published on Facebook and gave to the police. Oh. But how was dinner? Probably. Sounded pretty good. Steak sandwiches and fries. Sounds like he knows his way around the kitchen. Yeah. It's never as good when you have to make it, though. No. no. If only mom had been there on this arm, or break-in. What a great moment that would have been. Spe- <laughs> uh, speaking of breaking arms... Uh, President Trump's getting some bad press. Really? No way. Yeah. Apparently, you're not allowed to take the prime minister of Montenegro and kind of push him behind you. Says who? It was more like he grabbed his shoulder and pulled. Yeah. Like, and then ducked under. So and then get, snuck in. He could get so in front he could of the be group. in front of him. It was, the, it was a really weird moment. I didn't know what he – it seemed chummy. Yeah. Like their buddies, like it's, it seemed like a bunch of but aggressive twelve-year-olds, yeah, trying to get in line at the you know to see who would get their milk first at school. Right. <laughs> it's that kind of a. It was yeah. It was. I saw that and I'm like, that's something you do in like junior high. Yeah. What are you doing, boy? But then they asked the. Was it the president or prime minister? It was the prime minister of Montenegro. Montenegro. He said, "Well, it naturally the I president mean, of the United States would be in front. No problem." You know, that's kind of how we tried to diffuse the yeah. situation. But you're like, but you don't really you don't really move someone. You don't physically like and he like bumped somebody else because there was somebody kind of on the outside of the group <laughs> that was looking around like, who bumped me? What's going on? See, now Trump would have said the same thing if they asked him that question. Well, naturally, I'd be in the front. I mean, yeah. naturally. Then there was that moment where the French uh, president. What's his name? Um It's Macron. Macron. Everyone, yes. uh, people were mistaking it for macaroon. Yeah. Which would be a more tasty name. But uh, it Macron. sounds delicious to me. No. So he's walking toward the group, and they're all walking. Yeah, that was a, kind of a little showdown. And it looks like he's heading straight for Trump. And then at the last minute, he veers and goes to Angela Merkel, yeah. Angela Merkel, and gives her a little love. Yeah. Then 
shakes the person on her right, his left, uh, shakes the next leader's hand. Yeah. Then it almost looks like he's going to turn to Trump, but then he shakes. It goes to somebody else. I think then he goes back to the other side, <laughs> and he 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 basically put tr- President Trump as the fourth handshake. The fourth which, handshake, which is weird because he's. President of the United States, it should always be first. And Trump put his hands out, like maybe well, yeah. it was like beginning of a hug. I don't know. And it then it was the side hug, shake, shake, shake. Or, or, or did the French president just turn? I mean, yeah. did he do it on uh, purpose? Knows, you know? You're watching it, and I think that so much of that kind of stuff is being read into. Yeah. But, but you watch it, you're not sure what's happening. Oh, so he's can, never going to live that down. But yeah. He does seem like a very kind of, like he, he, he shakes you, he grabs you, he twists you. Yeah. He seems like a... He seems like a fun, loving president. Do you, do, like, do you like that when people, when well, they go to shake your hand, they grab your elbow and shake you around? And... Well, you know, it probably is, again, it's something that's different. If you're like in the White House, in your office, mm-hmm. and someone comes to visit you, then you can rough them up a bit. President Trump does like to grab your hand and then pull you in really close. Pull you in. If you remember during the inauguration, uh, Nancy Pelosi... Yeah. Reaches to grab his hand and he it looked like she like yanked it out of her arm <laughs> socket. You know, like whoa, settle down. Was it? Yeah, she was in a sling. Yeah. for a couple weeks after that. <laughs> oh yeah, this is this is his theme music. Is this going on? But it's almost like it's like the Europeans don't know quite how to handle him. Yeah, they they don't know that he's just hey he's just gonna you know, tussle your hair. And- German newspapers reported that he. Uh, he called them the very evil when talking with the yeah. Bible, e- that was another little faux pas. Because trade deficits with Germany. And wasn't in their he really cars. talking about the cars, the yeah. German car that I just bought? Yeah, but the, I mean, just he says that, then now oh, they're denying the they're reports very of bad that. people. Yeah. Something like that. Something. It just all this stuff just kind of follows him around. He, for some reason. he had a really good trip, I think, to Saudi Arabia. He looked really good there. It looked like Israel. He did pretty well. Had a little and the, the Pope. People made more fun of him about the Pope thing, yeah. but it's really this G7 summit thing that seems hardest for him. Well, I mean, he's talked this, about this pretty much critiques. everyone there, right? Yeah. yeah. But he pretty much had critiqued everyone else he's visited now. And so now, but now they're ganging up on him. And the press, of course. Well, of course. The press are after him. Well, they're, at, they're, they're kind of asking, so you said this, now you're doing this, why the yeah. change? And, I know, but you don't ask that. Is that wrong? Well, you don't. Yeah, it's he like has, he has yet to hold a like a press conference. No, he's busy. They've 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 kept him away from the media because the media is going to come back and ask about the Comey yeah. memos or this ask is about his what's first going on back trip. Home. And I mean, there's a lot to remember. Yeah. I mean, he may not even have known the prime minister of Montenegro was that guy. He may right. just thought that guy was Secret Service or a butler or something that he was moving out of the Do way. Do you have the drinks? No. <laughs> it's a lot of protocol, too. I don't know how you keep it all straight. Like, you, do, you, well, do you hold Melania's hand? And do you when not? You, when you see, I mean, anybody that's gone to these meetings over the years, you're right. They, they usually have, like, a protocol officer yeah. whispering behind your ear who all these people are. Don't don't talk to him. Talk yeah. to him. Don't push him. Push him. Right. Yeah. His his kid just went to college. Talk about that, you know? And yeah. They, Bring this up. It's a lot of pressure. I'd hate to be that. I'd hate to be the president. Now, Melania, I'd love to be. She just... She she's dazzling. She amazes people. There was a beautiful picture of her with all of the uh, the first spouses or whatever mm-hmm. they're calling them all. Will you dazzle from time to time? Oh yeah. Uh, what was that? Huh? What? Did you hear that moan? I don't know if dazzle's really the word. To okay, be dazzle. Well, there's that. Your I, your phone has all those nifty jewels on it. Yeah. You bring it out. It's like a disco ball. Yeah. People are booing because that was rude. Yeah. 
All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into free campus or free speech on campus. What's what you know? What is allowable? What isn't? Where can First Amendment rights be withheld? Can they be withheld on on a private campus versus public? We'll just cut through it all. Try to understand where we can speak and and how we do it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you may have heard of uh, the big hullabaloo about Ann Coulter at Berkeley University. And, um, you know, boy, did it cause a lot of problems. She was supposed to go speak. She was invited to speak. A lot of protest. And many people were claiming that free speech was no longer alive and well at Berkeley on the campus there. And so we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. We found a wonderful article, Can We Talk About Free Speech on Campus, by um, our next guest, Dr. Neil Hutchins. He is currently a faculty member in the high education, higher education program specializing in legal issues and in higher education at the University of Mississippi. He's been on the show before talking about student debt, and now we're going to try to understand the rules, the laws behind free speech on campus. Dr. Neil Hutchins, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Matt. Happy to join you. Great to have you back. So, okay, freedom of speech, you know, essential rights. And then we have this other problem on a campus where we're still trying to get people educated. We're trying to create safe environments. We want the ability for everybody's voice to be heard. How do we balance free speech on uh, on a campus? And I guess, is there a difference between a public campus and a private campus? Well, um, I, I, that's a, actually a very important distinction, uh, and I'll get to that in a second. But, but I think to your first point is that's one of the difficulties that colleges and universities face is that we're places that serve as these laboratories of democracy, but we also are in the business of education. So we've got students on our campuses. We've got lots of things going on, and, and it can sometimes be a difficult um, you know, balancing act on, on those different things. To the point about public or private, that's that's a really important distinction that I sometimes find that, that people don't completely understand. So in general, if we think of public colleges and universities, in a, in a way, as I sometimes tell this to my student, students, they're part of the government. So they have a responsibility to uphold the rights under the First Amendment, so rights of speech and expression. Just, um, just as we have as citizens in general. For private colleges and universities, while they often will provide similar rights, they're not beholden to the First Amendment. So a private college and university, um, for instance, if one has a particular religious mission, hmm. it may decide that it's not going to offer the same kind of speech rights as you might have at a public institution. Uh, the big exception to that is California has a law that says private institutions uh, that don't have a special religious mission, they have to give the same rights to their students as you would get under the First Amendment. But that's actually one of the very important distinctions in, in parsing this out. And sometimes people don't really understand that there can be a big difference when we're talking about speech rights at a private university yeah. versus at a public university. And I guess I guess the uh, because there's a big story um, on CNN about a woman at Walmart that was using racial and offensive language, and Walmart is banning her from Walmart. So 
that's that, it seems like the same thing. It's a private company that can ban you from doing certain things inside of their store. So private universities can say we're not going to tolerate certain speech or cer- certain behavior or even, I guess, congregating uh, in certain places on the private university. Right. If you if you think about it this way, it's very similar to a Walmart. There was also a story about Richard Spencer, the white nationalist who appeared at Auburn University. Auburn University had to allow him to appear. But I saw a story the other day that a health club, a private health club that he belonged to, is not allowing him mm-hmm. access. And so private colleges and universities, if they think in terms of their educational mission, they may decide that certain priorities or values, they're going to prioritize. So, for instance, this will happen, um, you know, we're talking a lot about students on the left and people on the left blocking people like Ann Coulter, but a private religious institution might say, for instance, under our religious mission, you know, we're not going to allow a student group um, for um, gay and lesbian students, for instance. Mm, That's not under our mission, that we we don't allow that. Now, one thing I will say... um, is that institutions, you know, I think should be very clear in this, because a lot of private institutions say, look, we believe that free speech and open dialogue is a critical part of our educational mission, just like you would have at a public institution. So I think in private institutions, the challenge is to make sure that institutions are clear, and they should be clear and upfront with students and their families about what their standards are. I think it's sometimes problematic if a private institution in their handbooks or other things says, look, you come here, we believe in free speech, but then they don't really live up to that. Mm. Um, But if they're clear and transparent and clearly say, you know, we have a mission that is, for instance, religious in nature or based on some other factors where we're different, then they can be, you know, Walmart as, as a private actor may and, and you see this all the time at private entities. They have a, their right, certain rights to say, well, we're going to limit what goes on. That's very different than if you're the government and somebody at a public university or when people want to engage in protest outside of, you know, a state house or in Washington, D.C. Um, when it's the government, you have rights as citizens to be able to engage in certain kinds of speech. Mm, so true. And, I mean, it, it, you're trying to balance so many different issues, you know, because especially in the educational setting where we want we want people's voices to be heard and we want to have kind of a, a almost a battle of ideas or at least a, a dialogue of, of different ideas so that we can teach people how to do such a thing. But then you also have the extremes that where there's lack of tolerance on both sides of any issue and the upheaval that it could cause, even just, you know, just a, a, a congregation meeting, a few words are said and it turns into something much more than just a speech issue. Um, it becomes a major safety issue. Talk about what happened with Ann Coulter then at Berkeley. Well, I, I think at Ann Coulter, that becomes a good example of also something that's, that's it's really hard for sometimes people to understand. So people will talk about um, that with an Ann Coulter, that, that the University of California, Berkeley, has invited her to speak. Or when Richard Spencer, the white nationalist, was appearing at Auburn University, people think, well, why is the university inviting them? Right. But actually, that's not really what's going on. For public universities, um, when they create certain spaces for you're talking about the battle of ideas for free speech to take place, 
So let's say if I'm at a public university like UC Berkeley, and I'm a student organization, and I have access to spaces where I can invite speakers in. Well, that's exactly what student groups do all the time. Now, oftentimes it doesn't make headlines. It's not controversial. But as a public university, Berkeley can't go in and then regulate certain ideas or speakers. We can't say, oh, we like that the student Democrats are inviting that group, but we don't like that the the, the student Republicans are inviting that group, or that we like what the, the Libertarian group is doing. And so what happens is people get a little confused, and they think that the university is inviting these guests. But mm -hmm. what's actually happening is this is the First Amendment at play. This is that, that, that a forum, what we call forum in legal analysis, has been created. This is a kind of forum that's open for student speech. Um, groups have invited speakers in, and the university is not allowed to pick and choose its messages. Now, sometimes what happens is with universities, we're talking about the business of education. And in this way, what's going on in our colleges and universities, it's, it's very similar to what's going on in civil society right now in the United States. There's just a lot of polarization. I mean, we have reports about political figures body slamming reporters. We have a lot of antagonism that goes on beyond just college campuses. But for colleges and universities, they're then faced with, if you think about it, they're, they've certainly ha now have controversial speakers that are potentially coming to campus. They're worried about the safety of individuals on campus. Um, and so that can create worry over the ability to manage that. So sometimes, even though um, it may not appear that way, I think sometimes officials are actually worried about campus safety and their ability to regulate yeah. the environment. That's exactly what happened. Um, you know, there was a fear. It was outside Berkeley, but there was even a fear that you were going to have supporters of Ann Coulter and then people who were protesting her that were really going to face off in a pretty violent confrontation. And not the university, but the city, um, you know, actually called in a lot, uh, a lot of police officers to maintain the peace. When Richard Spencer, the white nationalist, appeared at Auburn University, there was a certain level of physical confrontation. And now this gets also under First Amendment standards. When the university tried to cancel Richard Spencer's appearance, they actually didn't do it saying, we don't like his ideas. Their, their rationale, at least the one they offered, was we're concerned about the safety of our students. We, we don't think we're equipped to, to provide a safe environment. Now, under First Amendment standards... We sometimes refer to that as the heckler's veto. In other words, we don't let protesters drown out voices being heard. Mm. So a court said he's allowed to appear, but there was a confrontation that went on um, in that incident. So, again, I think what's happening to some extent on our college campuses is it's not so different than what we have going on in a very uh, polarized society that we have in the United States right now. And so we're we're part of the society. and trying to figure out how you engage in civil discourse. Um, you know, if you've got somebody who's a white nationalist, in a way it's very hard to reconcile that idea is ever going to be any kind of meaningful engagement right. with people who oppose that view or are students of color. Now, for somebody like me who is very much an advocate of the exchange of ideas, the First Amendment, free speech on campus, I end up in a position of um, – I, I, I will go and say, I, I don't endorse the views of an Ann Coulter right. um, or a Richard Spencer, but I think as part of engaging in that battle of ideas on our colleges and universities, I do think we want to make sure 
that we respect the rights of those voices to be heard. So I find myself at times very much uh, not agreeing with speech, but wanting to to validate the right of people to be able to speak. Yeah. Do you sense... Um, I mean, it's one thing to do it, but to pull in like the most polarizing voices, like you were saying, it's counterproductive here at BYU, a very conservative institution. And we but we have uh, one of my favorite devotionals we've had in years was with Archbishop um, Chaput. I I can't remember how to pronounce his last name, who's, who's the Archbishop of Philadelphia. So a Catholic archbishop is speaking to 10,000 BYU students. And um, it was it created, I think, a beautiful contrast and dialogue on the campus and um, differing opinions. It wasn't it wasn't Ann Coulter and Berkeley, but it was but it allowed it allowed to start building bridges and to create understanding and allow voice and even to talk about differences. It seems like you could there are there might be more acceptable choices if you want a conservative viewpoint that might have been a little bit easier to tolerate than Ann Coulter. And, and I think that's a, you know, that's a great point. I mean, one of the things that's happening is what we are getting the headlines or when we have like the Ann Coulters on campus or, or some things that, that are really divisive. But, you know, another way that I, I, I think about the debate, and your example makes me think of that, as someone who's a scholar of higher education, we often encounter and have lots of discussions about disengaged students. Yeah. In other words, that they're they're not being serious in their classes, they're partying a lot. So I kind of flip some of the concern that I see over the protesting of students and, and, and other things on our campuses and say, you know, in a way, isn't that what we want? We have students that are, they're deeply engaged yeah. with what's going on in the world and society. And so now maybe we need to help. Um, again, this is the educational component. Um, there was a recent example um, at a university where a professor had invited federal uh, immigration authorities, ICE agents, to appear in class. Mm. And there was a disruption of that. And, you know, I think rightly so. People said, you know, that's not the purpose of a university. The students who were in that class who very much might have disagreed with the position of those federal agents this was a chance to engage in that kind of meaningful dialogue. Now, the students who don't support support um, you know federal immigration policy absolutely have a right to to protest that. Um, and even as we ca- I think for college campuses, it's how we balance students being involved, but also really get them to also think about well, what kind of society do you want in terms of who gets to shut ideas down? Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, so, that's that. That's what it's about, right? And get get the get the students. I mean, they are engaged, which is wow. Finally, right? And yet, and yet, it's, it's interesting because the other side of the equation is some aren't engaged uh, even still, even after such a debate like that. Um, interesting stuff. Neil, let's take a break. We'll come back, continue this journey, talk also about speech zones, and um, and and how we how we bridge this gap. How. Is it the state that needs to make the decisions, uh, like California, and how they're taking on some of the campus, uh, you know, First Amendment rights? We'll get to that. Stick with us. More on free speech on campus. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the line is Dr. Neil Hutchins. He is a member, a faculty member in the higher education program, specializing in legal issues in higher education at the University of Mississippi. And uh, he, today he's talking to us about an article he wrote, Can We Talk About Free Speech on Campus? Really a lot of uh, important information. We it's It's one thing to know that you have the the freedom to speak but it's also how you use those freedoms and then the the collision that sometimes takes place on a college campus where we have multiple goals things we're trying to accomplish from getting people you know involved in in community and citizenship and um and getting free speech out there but also educating people getting people safely uh, through the campus experience um and we you know lot to cover here neil thank you again for being with us Oh, thank you very much. So it sounds like um, th- there there needs to be more speech about how we handle speech on campus. I, I think that's, that's, that's correct. I, I think one of the things that happens with, with some of the incidents that have arisen is that we haven't really um, completely thought about before um, our processes and how we need to react. And, and it, it's very hard in the middle of when you have – things that you're afraid can turn into violence or unrest to, to figure things out as they go. But again, that's also part of the vibrancy of our, our country and our democracy. Sometimes things get a little messy. doesn't mean we abandon ideas of, of speech. We just figure out how we can do things better and, and engage people. I often say that um, you know, when I'm asked about, for instance, speech that people find objectionable and how they should respond, I often say, uh, the best response to bad speech is good speech, better hmm. speech, more speech. Right, yeah. Healthier speech. Healthier speech. is. I mean, I guess one of the things that, that a lot of universities try to do, I guess, is create like a free speech zone, a space where, you know, you can – people could congregate, talk, share their ideas. Is I mean – but also you can see that sometimes they're not those no, those free speech zones may not be as adequate they're not as ample they don't have, they don't contain necessarily all the space they need or the facilities they need is um is that enough on a university or should there i mean should there be should they try to create a robust free speech area where daily they're having you know contest of ideas well and I think this is also where we get into the distinction between what it means to be a student, in other words, a citizen of a campus versus the general public. And this is often, often you know, can be dis- an area of dispute. But I'll talk about students first. And I think one of the, in, in my view, one of the healthy things that we're seeing about some of the emphasis on speech is that, and I don't necessarily think this was completely ideological, I think in some ways is colleges and universities have kind of thought of themselves like businesses, we've seen a certain, um, I don't think afraid is the right word, but a resistance to to students being able to engage in protest and speech activities like handing out pamphlets or petitions on their campuses. And so one of the things that has happened, including at public institutions, they would would set up these places they called free speech zones. They would say – that in these zones, people, students, for instance, can engage in protests, they can get petitions, they can do other things. 
but they're kind of limited to this part on campus. They can't move out into certain areas and, and, and everything. And, and in a way, this kind of makes sense. I mean, if you think about, like, offices or the library or something, um, again, in, in that business of education, if you're teaching a class, like if you're doing a, um, a math class or a chemistry class, we, we really don't want people bursting through the doors anytime they want, handing out right. you know, leaflets and stuff. So right. there's, again, there's got to be a balance there. But I think there's a growing sense that at some institutions, especially in open, the open areas of campus, the sidewalks, the other places, um, that, that some institutions have limited too much the ability of students to, to do things like, you know, hand out petitions, um, in, in, engage in speech activities. And there certainly have been lawsuits. There's one in California right now involving community colleges in Los Angeles about a student who said he was really put in a very small speech zone. Um, several years ago, there was pretty well-known lit- litigation involving University of Cincinnati. And, and courts have been pretty reluctant um, to enforce these really small speech zones for students. And now what we're seeing is um, the states are getting involved. So we've had uh, Virginia, Missouri, Arizona, I think Colorado and Utah, they've actually said that for public colleges and universities, they're striking down these, these speech areas. In other mm. words, they're saying that, you know, for your students, um, now they're, they're the rights of the colleges and universities to do things like control um, things like, um, you know, if you're going to have a really big group of like 150 people, well, maybe you do need to give some kind of prior notice so the university can be prepared for that. Or maybe those big groups need to be limited so people can get to and from their classes. Or maybe you can't stand outside the library with a megaphone or like sound amplification devices where people can't study. And so, you know, again, reasonable regulations should be permitted. But again, this idea that people need should be able to, at a public university, at least for students, to engage um, in their speech. Um, things like, you know, trying to get people to sign petitions, handing out leaflets and other things. Again, that laboratory of ideas. And um, you certainly have a number of other states that are considering those kinds of laws as yeah. well. And so, um, you know, I think it will be interesting to see. I think we'll probably see more and more institutions, even if they're not compelled by the law to voluntarily adopt that. I think it's a little bit of a course correction, in my view, from, again, I think institutions, you know, they're very sensitive to things like image and what happens, and it can have um, consequences. Um, You know, at the University of Missouri, which we had some very serious issues that were playing out in relation to civil rights, uh, that's an institution that's seen a significant drop in enrollment as it continues to work its way through issues. And so, you can imagine a college administrator, they're not even necessarily always, they're concerned about, well, what happens if you've got people run amok and they're protesting and doing other things and you've got high school seniors coming with their parents? Right. Be afraid to send them to my university. Yeah. So, I didn't even think of that. Like, there's constantly, there's kids coming to check out schools to decide what school to go to and you walk your kid right through the middle of a major protest. I mean, it's it's interesting because these campuses now are it's a it's a battle. It's you know they're all marketing against each other. There's a lot of money at stake here. We've got to keep drawing people in. So it's a fine line they have to walk. Well, and and that's where um, I've seen at least one case, um, and this was in a dealing with a public institution, in a large urban area, and you know even the court kind of acknowledged that the publics are competing with the private. So, I mean, that's one thing about hmm. a private institution, because it doesn't have to adhere in general outside of, 
least California, um, you know, uh, doesn't have to adhere to the First Amendment the same way. They, they, they may have a recognition that they want the, the you know, we've got kind of this, it's, it's kind of myth, but this ideal of the, the peaceful, tranquil college quad right. and, and people reading books, throwing frisbees. <laughs> and then if you show, again, if you show up with your high school senior and there's kind of a march or a protest going on, the, the privates from a market standpoint, they oh. maybe want to regulate that a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. that even gets into educating, I think, parents and students while they're in high school that, you know, this is part of can be a really valuable part of the educational process. Sometimes things that make us feel uneasy um, aren't aren't always fun, but they're not necessarily bad. But that's where I also have sympathy for, if you think about a student who's living on a college campus, um, maybe they're um, a student of color and they're at a predominantly white campus. And if we, once we open up the campus, you know, to lots of kind of speech and other things, like they they maybe just kind of want to walk to their class in peace. Yeah. I mean, think about us when we go to work. If out if, as soon as you left your front door in the morning, somebody's putting pamphlets and other things, mm-hmm. and you're just sometimes like, you know, I want to have my Starbucks. Yeah. And just kind of zone out for a minute and go into the office. Um, so I think that's also something that gets left out of this a little bit is that. Um, you know, just like when a lot of us who aren't working in college campuses, kind of on our morning commute and stuff, or when we're driving to work, going out our door, we, we sometimes just kind of want to zone out a little bit, you know, get yeah. ready for the work yeah. day. And so I think that's, that's some of what goes on into when institutions with the ideas of speech zones and other things are, they're, they're again, trying to balance that on a college campus, students they go to class, but they live there. I mean, that's really like their little it's their life. Well, you see it. Don't you see it? You see it with uh, people that listen to the radio and can't get enough of political talk and and all of that. But I mean, the majority of people don't just sit there and live and die by radio's political talk. And so it, it, it almost you wonder what percentage of people on a campus are actually socially active? Is it really just a vocal minority that causes a lot of uproar? Or, I mean, I was a person that just wanted to get my stupid degree done so I could go work and support a family. I just wanted to get going. And um, yeah, if I was being stopped all the time. Do you, do you think in the end, how we handle this, though, on campus might predict long term how involved these people are in social activism and social issues? Well, you know, I think that would be, as a researcher, I would say that's a, a would be a great research study. And I also go back to where, again, you know, I just gave the example of maybe if I'm on a college campus and I'm trying to, I've gone for lunch and I've had a really long day, like I have small kids, maybe I'm really tired, my daughter has not slept that night, and yeah. I go out the door and people are waving pamphlets and stuff, that may be an inconvenience. But then I go back to, um, again, I believe in the value of speech and the exchange of ideas. Sometimes that may create inconveniences, but the example that you just gave, we have research for students who are disengaged during the educational process. They're not engaged in the classroom. They're not engaged outside of the classroom. What they seem to be engaged on is, you know, we all we hear about stories of students who they don't want to schedule classes um, before noon, and they really don't want to schedule classes on Monday or Friday or even Thursday. Wow. You know, because they're they're really into the social aspects, and so for these students who are engaged in in the the, 
the protest, even sometimes the civil disobedience, like they, they might occupy the provost office or the president's office. Yeah. Again, I go back to that, that as educators, I think we want to really engage them about, you know, what are the best ways to get your views across? How do you also give space to listen to views that you don't like? Hmm. But that's a, I would rather have that as an issue and know that students are caring about what's happening on their campuses in the world. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's not a completely bad problem to have. It's the the, the disengaged student. Um, you know, what do we do about that? That person's going to be, you know, maybe not voting, maybe not right. active in their communities. And so, uh, again, where we want to to get students to really think about what it means to 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 be engaged and, and what happens when you're at a you have an Ann Coulter type person that you you have to deal with. They're visiting your campus, or when you're done with school. They, they're, you know, showing up to give a speech in the community, or maybe they're running for office. Um, really thinking about through the responses and what it means to be a responsible civic actor. Yeah, and be, and be involved in that and active in that and knowing how to handle it. That's beautiful. I mean, it's really, it's the goal. Uh, Neil Hutchins, thank you so much. Keep up your great work at uh, the University of Mississippi. And uh, all of us, let's, let's get active. And it doesn't mean you have to protest everything, but you can also be involved and understand and read and write articles and opinions and op-eds and get involved. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead a healthier life. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Hey, a few quotes for you um, about the power of freedom of speech. Mark Twain said, It is by the goodness of God that in our country we have three unspeakably precious things. The freedom of speech, the freedom of conscience, and the prudence never to practice either of them. That's, again, there are... You have the freedom to speak. You have the freedom of conscience to lead your life by your conscience, the dictates of your heart, your thoughts. And uh, you also have the freedom to to not care enough to do anything about anything if you don't want to. And, of course, the great wise Tommy Smothers from, I believe, Smothers Brothers, freedom of expression and freedom of speech aren't really important unless they're heard. The freedom of hearing is as important as the freedom of speaking. And uh, so maybe that's a little lesson for all of us. We fight, we argue, we have all these people fighting for more and more rights to be heard, and yet is anybody hearing? When Ann Coulter can't go to the campus and be heard, then the freedom of speech is useless, and when we can't hear the complaints about Ann Coulter without it turning into something ugly, then those complaints are are useless as well. So we need to just start listening. Open up your ears. How would that be if we could just hear each other a little bit more? That's the first hour. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. More fun next hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Good morning, friends. Welcome back. Happy Friday to you as you get ready to launch the big uh, Memorial Day weekend. Remember, it's Memorial Day. You should be remembering those that have given their lives for your country, for you. Remember to do that Monday. It's not about staining your deck and barbecues? Not, yeah. No. It's, it's easy to get into the deck. Mm. There's usually a barbecue thrown in there somewhere. Yeah. And that's great. You know? Eat more nitrates. Lucky. My brother was actually testing the burgers on his grill last night to make sure he could grill them oh, a fe- efficiently yeah, yeah. on Memorial Smart. Day. Yeah. What a good guy. Yeah. He didn't share with me, though, when I went to his house. He just said he was doing it. Yeah. By the way, it's, it's National Don't Friday. Yeah. Uh, which we'll is do more that. about... We'll do that Monday. Well, but it's actually... This is less about bacon and foods. You're this not going to put bacon on your burger at your barbecue? I'm not. I'm not going to have a barbecue. Yeah, he's going to have a juice off. Yeah, we're no. going to have a juice. Do you have a? Do you have sound of a juice off? It's like a blender. I had a blender yesterday. Yeah, but it's gone. Um. By the way, I went to a wedding and it was a barbecue. I think we talked about this, and they were serving hot dogs, the best looking hot dogs I have ever seen mm. in my life, ever. Mm. They were hot dogs. They weren't like sausages they were, or they were bratwurst. Like, or... They were Polish dogs. You could get a Polish dog or like an all beef. Anyway, mm. I couldn't eat one. Yeah, well. I've never wanted something more. <laughs> hey, I'm still thinking about it. So yes. you mentioned the other day that you go to like two weddings a week. Yeah, well, we're invited to two, yeah. I see. We're going to be talking about another well, I've got a wedding. wedding tonight. <gasps> so what does it mean if you choose not to go? Well, a lot of times it just means we have something else going on, mm. but then we still have to. You still have to give a gift. Oh, but I'm loving it because I just give them my book. Oh, yeah. You know, you have that box in the closet. Just get rid of another book, right? And they're like, "Wow, look, he's so thoughtful." Yeah. What? And, and so it's I personalize it to them. Done. Do you put a coupon in there for like a free session or anything? Yeah, I give them my business card. Believe me, you're going to need me later. Wrong. The honeymoon will soon be over. That's one of my lines I write. The honeymoon half, will soon be over. You're like, did, half of all marriages need my help. Right. <laughs> you know, I bet the wedding that you may or may not go to this weekend is not going to be as exciting as the one we're talking about here in a minute. We have a big wedding news. Hmm. Like, it's it's incredible. You won't believe it. It's You probably shouldn't believe it. Well, you probably shouldn't believe it. We, we're going to be talking about a snake wedding. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Rattlesnake wedding. Ah, it, it, I, it's it's a marriage between a man and a snake, really. I think it's like the first temptation. Okay, it's <laughs> interesting. Um, no, we'll get to it. It's it's a pretty crazy story. You won't believe what state it's out of, by the way. Oh, Florida. Of course it is. It's out of Florida. I had to look to see what the story was. Again, we love Florida because they have they have open records laws, so we can hear every story that comes out of Florida. It's great. Most states keep some of their stories quiet because they don't want anyone to know. Which is interesting when you hear the story when it gets to the level that we see it from random states. Yeah, you're like, wow, if that's the crazy that gets to like a national level and we can find it, there's what's be. actually happening in the state. I know. I wish every state had open records. Then we could laugh at everyone. Yeah. Uh, so we will be getting to the Florida man critically injured after a rattlesnake bites his tongue. Mm. We'll get to that story. Um, and also um, an unsuspecting Minnesota Walmart customer takes down a startled deer. Yeah, the video was interesting. More animal news up next. Plus, we're going to talk about 10 tips 
for solving uh, relationship conflicts. You can't just run. You can't hide. You can't name call. There's stuff you got to do. Can you just go, you're right, just to get it over with? No. Just to end the fight? No. Just, just You got to get clarity. You got to talk it out. You <sighs> actually have to solve that Sounds like said such issue. a long discussion. Mm-mm. It's all, it's, this is called love. Ugh. And it's forever. I mean, you'll be fighting well into your 90s now with the advent of all this health technology. It's my denture cream. Sorry. <laughs> Keep your hands off my teeth. So uh, we'll get to all that fun. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should pay attention to? General Motors Company was accused in a lawsuit on Thursday of rigging hundreds of thousands of diesel trucks with devices similar to those used by Volkswagen to ensure they pass emission tests. The proposed class action lawsuit covers people who owned or leased more than 700,000 Chevy Silverados and GMC Sierra pickup trucks uh, with a Duramax Duramax engines from 2011 to 2016. It says GM used at least three different defeat devices to ensure that the trucks met federal and state emission standards, even if they generated more pollution in real-world driving. Holy cow. That that just cost Volkswagen, (laughs) like, what, 18? billion dollars or yeah, something. something like some crazy amount so yeah so now we have them renault which owns dodge renault was in the news yesterday and today it's chevrolet Holy apparently cow. this is a common thing in the industry which everybody's is everybody's cheating something i believe volkswagen pointed out somewhere along the way that this is a common thing well and by the way maybe that also tells us something about the epa standards if everyone has to cheat then something's not working right right Something's weird. Right. Uh, another story. A girl in Canada was pulled into a harbor by a seal. A sea lion is receiving medical treatment over concerns of her broken skin could have been infected by dangerous bacteria oh, from no. the animal's mouth. Remember the girl? That cute girl. Pulled in. That was her grandfather that was jumped it? in and pulled her out. He's the hero of the day. They've been going back and forth with people saying that they're, you know, bad parents or whatever. Oh, and they're like, Yeah. Says the family contacted the Vancouver Aquarium for help after one of the facility's mammal trainers spoke about the condition during several interviews over the weekend on TV. Infection is called seal finger. It is caused by different kinds of myo, mycoplasma bacteria, which live in the mouths of sea mammals like seals and sea lions. If left untreated, the infection can lead to loss of fingers or limbs. Hold it. Wasn't seal finger a Bond movie? It could be. She did get seal a... Seal finger. The girl did get a superficial wound, and she's going to get the right treatment, says oh, an boy. aquarium spokesperson. I thought the name of the disease was actually celiac disease. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I don't, I don't think the seal injected any wheat product into her wound. In other news, a woman in Wisconsin pumping gas near Milwaukee stopped a thief from stealing her SUV by jumping on its hood and clinging to the windshield wipers as the man tried to drive away. Melissa Smith admits it may not have been the best thing to do, but she says it was a gut decision to stop the carjacking Tuesday. Video of the attempted carjacking shows the would-be thief breaking the glass, uh, breaking in the gas station parking lot, or breaking... The gas station parking lot as he now tries. So he's in the car, tr- just starts backing forward and back yeah, forward, yeah. trying to toss her off. Uh, he drives she, into the street. He throws it. Actually, he threw it into gear, jumped out of the car. It rolls into the street with her on the hood of it. She jumps off. She puts it in park. She's a tough cookie, and then she kind of collapses. Right. But what a man, don't mess with her. Yeah. That's awesome. So she saved her car. I wouldn't recommend doing that, no. but that's what no. happened. And this one I, I, I found interesting. We need to judge whether this is the correct reaction to this situation. Okay. So Minnesota mother 
thought her third grader would be home by 1.30 on Tuesday afternoon, the sure. last day of school. By 1.40, she still wasn't home. Where's so she the child? she walked down the street to the bus stop, and there was no bus, no one, no one there. There was a mom that talked to her, and she goes, oh, you know what happens? Last day of school around here, the bus drivers take the kids to Dairy Queen. They get yeah. everyone on the bus Dairy Queen. Wow. Like, a, you know, a, yeah, like whatever, a, a blizzard, whatever. So they all get ice cream. And the mom's like, well, I didn't get a per- – no one sent home a permission slip. No one asked permission. They just take the kids to Dairy Queen? Yeah. This is and the mom's like, well, yeah, it's been done for the last few, year, few years, the school district. That's what we do in Minnesota. And she's like – so the mom files a complaint. Oh, boy. Goes down to the Dairy Queen, gets her daughter, brings her home, files the complaint, turns it into an issue. The school district is now addressing how this is done, maybe better communication, all this. Bus driver's just trying to be nice. They've been doing yeah. it for several years. The mom's reaction. Huh. How would you react to that? Do you uh, cause this big of a stir? Do you realize they're trying to be nice and they, it's something well, if, that's common you were unaware of? If a Butterfinger blizzard is on the line, hmm, I think she overreacted. I'm going to bet. The if, district received no other complaints about this incident. Well, I'm going to bet if, if you went and when you pull up with the mom at the Dairy Queen, I'm going to bet her daughter was having a good time. And so why can't both ideas be right? That the guy or gal was doing a really good thing. Let's just celebrate it. And next year, let's inform the parents. Make sure everybody knows next year. Right. If we have to sign it, whatever, let's sign them next year. But let's not make a big issue out of this one because now we know. You know? But let's just make sure next year. Yeah. But instead, we... This is why people don't know how to express their opinion without, you know, dumping over the whole cart. She was concerned that a school bus full of – and it was multiple school buses at this Dairy Queen, right? Oh, sure. And there's no chaperones, just the bus drivers, right? right? No, I mean, it it makes sense. Lots of things could go wrong. 20, 30 kids each school bus. Right. Kids could be running all over. Right. This girl – this little girl will never be invited to another birthday party. Yeah. As long as she that's the other thing is your mom is the one that's causing what the problem. What if the child's lactose intolerant? You don't know. The bus driver doesn't suffer with that the rest of the day. The no. mother does. Right. So, I mean, it does make sense. But So the rule is both things can be right. It could be good and decent and honorable. And we need to think things through a little bit more. Mercy. Yeah. <laughs> do, I mean, do you remember what I, I we had a postman that would every day would come and give every kid a candy mm-hmm. and every kid would run up to the postman and we'd all take the candy. And we, hey, by the way, it could it's super dangerous because you don't know what his intentions were. Right. And he had that nasty little thumb rubber thing they put on their thumb to count the mail. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, I mean, what what's on that? Who knows? And he's handing us candy. Right. But there's good things that ha- there's just good people that do good things. And now we have to make everything legal and jump through twenty hoops. But, By the way, interestingly, her daughter won't be any safer with a form signed doing the exact same event right. than without the form signed. Well, unless they get some chaperones, like you were saying. But yeah, the mom would depending know depending on the chaperone too, because the, mo- the mom would know where her kid was. Exactly. She had no idea where her kid was. Right. Not weird. Bus is like 20, 30 minutes late. You're like, what's going on? And it's, I guess this lady was new to the neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of parent doesn't know where their kids are? Exactly. <laughs> it's horrible parenting. Isn't that weird? I mean, we can take it any way we want to take it. Uh, I feel bad for the little girl because she just wanted a blizzard or whatever she was going to get. Right. I'm sure she was just getting a 50-cent cone. Right. 
It's a on. lot of kids, right? I mean, he's a bus driver. He's not a millionaire. Hey, uh, a story we got to get to. Um, a Florida man was airlifted to Jacksonville Hospital Tuesday after he was bitten on the tongue by a venomous snake, a rattlesnake. I mean, don't you wonder how a rattlesnake gets to your tongue? Yeah, that would be the first question. Well, a county fire and EMS spokesperson said they responded to a snake bite call around 4.30 p.m. Responders treated the, the man and had him airlifted to the hospital. Neighbors say the man was trying to kiss a rattlesnake hmm. when it bit him on the tongue. It was just a kiss. Right. Little Here, rattlesnake. So um, Jeff apparently found a video. Is that what you found, Jeff? Yeah. It's a video of a of a rattlesnake courtship that led to a wedding, I guess. I think this man was, was marrying the snake, and that's what led to the kiss. So it's not as weird when you say it that way. Well, yeah. I mean, it's weird to just go kiss a snake, but and let alone a rattlesnake. But if it's going to be a legally binding yeah, if you're contract. Getting, if you're getting married yeah. and you're serious about the relationship, it's not as weird. So here's a little audio from the uh, rattlesnake wedding. Dearly beloved... We are gathered here today to join this man and this snake in holy matrimony. Let us first hear the exchanging of the marriage vows. Chester, you first. Petunia, ever since I seen you at that revival, I knew you was a snake for me. I'll love and cherish you until the day you slither and die. Now you, Petunia. And now, by the power vested in me, you may kiss the snake. The MT News Team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. Great audio. I mean, that's hard audio to get. I think, did we have to pay for that? That was touching. I, I always get teary when I hear, when I'm at a wedding. But that one, I don't know. My eyes were watering a lot after that one. Just how fast his tongue swelled up. Maybe was, it was the venom yeah. got in your eyes. That <sighs> was a beautiful vow, though, too. Yeah. Every time that ha- I'd hear that, I'd get the chills. I don't know. That might be the fear kicking in. I've wanted to kiss a lot of things, but never a snake. <laughs> <laughs> like a little cute little baby on just kiss their little cheek. But a rattlesnake? Well, maybe, maybe a snake without the venom. No. Okay. They have fangs. I mean, who would put their mouth that close to a snake? It must be love. Ah, Love comes in many different shapes and sizes. Uh, Next, uh, Dr. Gwendolyn Seidman will be joining us. Ten tips for solving relationship conflicts. How you don't get bit by the snake you married. Stick with us. As anyone uh, who's been in a romantic relationship knows, disagreements and fights are inevitable. Think about it. You can't spend so much time together without running into some issues. These disagreements can be big or small, ranging from failing to complete a chore, 
or, you know, to financial problems that, that you have to settle and figure out. Fighting isn't necessarily a bad thing. It actually can be healthy for the relationship if you know how to go through the argument and, and do it in a healthy way. Here to help us a little bit more with our relationships is Dr. Gwendolyn Seidman. She's an associate professor of psychology and the chair of psychology at the Department of, uh, uh, of the Psychology Department at Albright College. Gwendolyn, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So conflict, not bad in a relationship. It's good, right? It, 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 it's, a, it's a doorway to create a better relationship. Right, absolutely. I mean, obviously conflict can be bad. It can be unpleasant. Um, and if it's not handled correctly, it can be very destructive for relationships. But on the other hand, if you don't have any kind of conflict in your relationship, if you never argue with your partner there's no way to actually solve any problems. Because as you said at the beginning, problems of some sort are pretty much inevitable. So um, you need to figure out a way to constructively go about solving those problems if you want to have a healthy relationship. And I guess part of that is those are the skills we don't necessarily ever learn. Uh, It seems like a lot of times we just think that, you know, you'll just naturally handle these problems. It seems like we ought to be giving these skills to younger kids or people before they're getting married so that they know how to actually take on a conflict. Right. Absolutely. I think that some people, yeah, they naturally have those skills. I think a lot of people don't, they're not really sure how to handle these things. Uh, they tend to you know, avoid conflict uh, or a lot of people actually think that fighting is definitely bad, that you should do whatever you can you know, to avoid fighting, uh, which is not necessarily the case. Um, and if you know how to manage it well, then, you know, you can really help your relationship. And there are, you know, some people who do go get premarital counseling and that sort of thing. But it's actually rare, right? Most yeah. people wait until there's already serious problems before they think about getting any kind of help or training. No, I see that, too, in my own practice. I just, people come in and they, you know, if they just come to us years or a few years earlier when these things started, and usually they come in when they're tired, exhausted, they're done, they can't take any more. But uh, you brought up in an article you wrote on Psychology Today, 10 Tips for Solving Relationship Conflicts. The first point you bring up is let's be direct. Like, let's quit beating around the bush on these issues. Right. Um, a lot of times people, and this sort of goes in hand in hand with what I was saying before, that a lot of people um, feel like they should avoid arguing. So, when they're upset about something, they still want it known, they still want it fixed, but they don't want to directly confront it because it's uncomfortable. So they may hint around, you know, what it is that's bothering them. They may sort of expect their partners to kind of know what's wrong. You should be able to figure out from my behavior that you're doing something I don't like. Um, people do that kind of thing a lot. And people often think that the hints should be obvious. Their partner should know um, what they're thinking or feeling and figure out how to respond. Like if you really loved me and understood me, you would know what you're supposed to do. I shouldn't have to come out and tell you uh, that sort of thing. Um, you know, or people can just be afraid of confronting their partners because it's unpleasant to have the confrontation. Oh, it's uh, so but, true. But the, the, you, you, know, can't, you can't be a mind reader and you can't expect mind reading. And so p- part of what I found with couples, too, is if we just if we if we let them practice these skills in a safe place and we we start showing them that, hey, look, nobody died. Look, we got through that and nobody died. Um, really, they start to believe they can do it. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. People who aren't used to engaging in conflict, or might be especially loath to do it, thinking there's going to be these bad consequences. Uh, but, you know, in fact, the consequences can come instead from, you know, not having discussion. And especially if you're being indirect and you're hinting around like that, I mean, your partner might realize that you're unhappy because you're kind of in a mood, uh, but they don't really know why or what to do about it. You know, same as we were saying before with the, the mind-reading idea that, you know, there's no way to, to really know what your partner wants without them telling you. Totally right. And part of it, too, it seems like is more the tone we're coming off. A lot of time, and this is one of the points you bring up, we, we, need, to t- we need to find a way to talk about our feelings without putting all the blame on our partner. Right, right. Um, yeah, a lot of the research on conflict suggests that uh, people are going to be especially upset and have problematic conflicts when they blame their partners. And they say, you know, you... Uh, and, you know, never clean up around a house, you're a big slob, you know, that sort of thing, when it's you know, this combination of often using kind of extreme statements and putting all the blame on the other person. It's like, I'm unhappy with you, you're bad, you're doing something bad, um, as opposed to thinking about this as a problem that's, you know, for us, that we both have an opinion, or you both have a side, uh, you know, has a tendency to just sort of put it all on your partner and just lash out at them in frustration uh, is not good. But oftentimes when people don't, um, give themselves a chance to discuss these conflicts, then they might let it all build up, and then suddenly they lash out. Like, I can't believe how horrible you've been being. Uh, you know, and that ends up not being constructive rather than dealing with more specific things and trying to understand why your partner is doing them. It's so true. So I statements, kind of owning my feeling of this, I, I guess part of that is it puts some of the onus on me. These are my feelings. Um, I, the hard thing it seems like about an I statement is even an I statement with the wrong tone can go ugly and go sideways. Yes, yeah. So it's, it's kind of tricky to do it in a way that it's you know sounds that you really you really are owning your feelings. This idea you say I feel like this to sort of say this is you know this is on me. It's not just about you. It's not like you are a bad person. It's that you know I feel hurt when you do X. Um, that, that you really need to own it. But it's difficult to do that in a way that's not accusatory or even won't be interpreted by the other person right. as accusatory. Like, that's part of the problem is sometimes um, the other person might get defensive, you know, even when you're not directly blaming them. Obviously, the more you're directly blaming your partner and accusing them of things, right, the more likely they are to, you know, not be open to discussing it. But um, some people may become defensive very easily. And then when that happens, things can end up escalating uh, into sort of a you know, screaming match and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, no, it's so true. And and part of it is because um, how you're thinking about it in your head, if you really do think it is your partner's fault, that that makes you even more mad. And so you almost need to think some of this out ahead of time because that, that might help balance your tone a little bit more and – I mean, even write it down. I've just found just helping people think through other ways to say it with a softer tone and a little more, you know, balanced uh, accountability to it um, helps go a long way. Yeah, there's actually a really interesting study that came out a couple of years ago um, where researchers were trying to come up with a way to help couples um, deal with conflict and not experience some of the uh, inevitable declines in marital satisfaction that tend to happen. and. Um, what they did is they basically told the partners that 
after they have a conflict. We just did this thing with a couple times a year uh, to write, do a writing exercise where they write about the conflict and imagine how a third party would respond to it, to somebody who um, had both couple members' interests at heart, really want, you know, wanted them both to do well. How would this, this objective third party talk about the conflict? How would they perceive it? And just doing that exercise um, just a couple of times a year, very, very brief, um, those couples in that condition actually did not show the same declines in satisfaction hmm. as a control group that didn't do it. I mean, it's really simple thing, really just did not take that much of like an hour a year. You know, it actually like, you know, protected them from some of these declines. This idea that, you know, stepping back, being objective, not just taking your partner per- partner's perspective, but also saying like, Imagine, you know, I'm a fly on the wall here. What, you know, how would I actually look at this situation? Yeah, it's so you know, true. Do you know what I found, too, with my own clients is letting them um, – I always suggest that when they, they go into a conversation like this, because we've already taught them the skills when they're doing this, I always tell them to record it. And what's amazing is when they're recording their fights, um, things change. And because they, they now know there's going to be a replay of all of this, and it actually changes how they behave. So th- that's they, a, that's they, a good idea. is that weird or what? But it's like, yeah. it's, it's almost like, because I noticed that they could always do it if I was sitting in the room, they tend to hold on a lot better than if I'm not in the room. So let's just pretend like I'm in the room by recording it. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, right? Because people, you know, need to sort of feel more accountable for, for what they're saying, maybe. And I think especially when it's a heated argument. You know, I often think, uh, I, I teach this material, uh, not a therapist, and I always think like it's very easy to stand up there in front of the, you know, the room of students very calmly saying, yeah. oh, you should do this, you should make eye statements, and all this kind of stuff. And then thinking, well, how difficult is it to actually implement this when you really are upset and angry right. with your partner? <laughs> right, when you want to gouge their eyes out. In fact, and, and that, it also... There's an interesting thing that it seems like, and maybe this is one of your points, is you got to pick your battles. Not we, it can't be that every discussion has to become a big discussion, and it does. Every issue doesn't have to be talked about, does it? I mean, it seems like if every day I think we're going to have to go home and have a serious, deep conversation where I've done something wrong again, that in and of itself might be causing a lot of the reaction. Right, right. That's, that's one of the tricky parts is that, you know, obviously you don't want to avoid conflict outright. Right. That's a problem. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't want to be in a situation where all you're doing is talking about conflicts and talking about problems and, and that sort of thing, that you have to kind of know when to let little things fly. So it's a difficult kind of balancing act because if you let everything fly, you're going to become resentful. Yeah. Right. But if you, let, if you don't let anything fly, then there's going to just be a lot of negativity and your partner's going to be constantly worried. You're going to get upset with them. And so that, that can be bad too. You know, so it's, true. It's how do you, how do you strike that good balance between being open about discussing conflict and letting things go and accommodating the fact that sometimes people are not nice all the time and just kind of dealing with that. Yeah. It's um, that's why I call it. Uh, I mean, I, I know uh, John Gottman, he's been on the show before with us and he talks about calling it the kitchen sink, you know, throw uh, yeah throwing everything in the kitchen sink in. I call it um, smorgasbording. It's kind of like when you go to a smorgasbord and you get, you try everything, like (laughs) stuff you know you'll never eat, stuff you've never eaten before, you'll try it. 
But it's almost sometimes when we're fighting and arguing, we, we'll throw anything into the argument, which usually seems like a sign that you don't really want to fix anything. <laughs> because you're, right. if you wanted to fix it, you'd keep it clean and let's focus on one issue at a time and let's slow this thing down. But instead, we're throwing everything at it. Right. I think sometimes people will argue and they'll use that as a way to vent, you know, to say, I am angry and here's my laundry list of all the things that you've been doing that pissed me off that I've been, you know, holding back. Now I'm going to say everything. Um, and maybe that feels sort of good in the moment because you're like, ah, look at that. I'm going to finally get it all out and tell you what I really think. But, you know, ultimately that's going to be make your partner feel bad, get, make your partner defensive and obviously not solve any of those things. Mm. Yeah. And then then what? Then we do it again tomorrow. And after doing this for years, you just get really good at being really bad. (laughs) You kind of get you become incredibly ineffective, but very efficient at at your ineffectiveness. Um, What what would you say is when someone says, you know what, it's just better to avoid it, you know, or it's just better to just say, yes, honey, you're right. You're right. I'm bad. Um. What is the downside to never handling the consequence or, or the, the argument and the conflict? Well, I think that, you know, if you are just saying, fine, I'm going to just tell my partner they're right about everything. If you decide to accommodate everything, um, there's no way that you're not going to feel um, resentful or feel like you're not really, that the relationship is somehow unfair or unbalanced in some way. Um, if you know all you ever do is just sort of skirt around issues and just try to avoid pissing your partner off, yeah. and the odds are that you yourself have some issues as well. Yeah, and you might feel like, oh, my partner basically browbeats me about their issues, and I never can say anything about mine. Um, and if, it, it would just—I can't imagine a situation where you would not end up feeling resentful about that kind of thing, you know, eventually. And later in life, I've I've seen couples where they say, "Okay, what I I found my voice, and now I'm sharing my voice." And she just doesn't like that I'm now sharing my voice. But you're not sharing it. You're angry. You're ticked. You're upset. You're being rude, and you're now saying things you haven't said for ten years. It's it's not just sharing your voice. You're 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 letting all that venom out now. So we've got to figure out a healthier way to let it out. Let's um, let's take a break, Gwendolyn. We're, again, we're speaking with Dr. Gwendolyn Seidman, and she uh, wrote an, uh, an article, uh, 10 Tips for Solving Relationship Conflicts. She is also um, a professor and uh, associate professor of psychology and chair of the psychology department at Albright College and is w- helping us walk through conflict and uh, some of the skills, the tools we all need to make the difficult conversations a little easier. Stick with us. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Gwendolyn Seidman, and she's talking about an article she wrote, 10 Tips for Solving Relationship Conflicts. Gwendolyn, again, is an associate professor of psychology and chair of the psychology department at Albright College. Gwendolyn, again, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So conflict, normal. Uh, The ability, the skills to kind of get through it is exceptional, and, and it's something we all need to learn 
to, to manage our conflicts. One of the rules that you set up that it, it's it sounds so simple, but it really I think is it's such a core thing. Um, really listen to your partner. There is so much information in what they're saying or even complaining about that can enlighten you if you'll listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, people often have a difficult time listening. Part of it's because they have their own stuff that they want to say. Uh, part of it is because, you know, they know they have their own stuff they want to say, but they really feel like they want that point made. I think that they're right in some kind of argument. And also people also do think that they know their partners really well. I know exactly how he feels about this or what he's going to say. Uh, I don't really need to listen to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. I know this. I know this tune. And the truth is, even if you know the tune, which you probably don't know the tune as well as you think you do, but even if you do know it, it's still frustrating for your partner to feel like you're not listening. Mm. And so even if you feel like, okay, I've heard this before, I know what my partner's going to say, uh, it still is good for your partner to feel like you're paying attention to them and not just saying, yeah, 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 I know what you're going to say and blow them off. So true. And I've noticed, too, that when I listen to my partner and it's the hardest time to listen is when they're really emotional and they're because if they're if they have a responsibility too to make it a little easier for me to listen. Right. I mean, I'm because if if they're using bombastic language and they're calling me names and tons of negative energy, it's harder for me to listen. But the more I listen, I, I can actually hold up what they're saying. And many times they'll finally, for the first time, get to see that, well, that's not what I meant. You're not a complete loser. <laughs> then they'll back off of what they're saying. And we can we can almost get down to really what point you're trying to make. Right, right. Honestly, it is hard, as you said, if your partner is saying things that are really nasty, like if your partner's not using I statements and all this other stuff. And and calmly telling you how they feel if they're freaking out and yelling at you. But I do think, as you said, that if the, your partner feels like you're listening to them, that that can actually calm them down. People are more likely to scream and yell and hurl insults when they feel like they're not being listened to. So true. Does um, when you you're, Another point you bring up is that at some point, don't automatically object to your partner's complaints. It's almost like a lot of us just have this automatic no that goes off, and um, and in a way, it, it it makes it so you're already in fighting mode. How do you not? Are there any tricks to to making sure you're you're actually willing to engage instead of just automatically fighting it? Yeah, I think it's definitely one of the harder things. I think across the board, one of the hard hardest things to do is to avoid getting defensive. Um, and so, when your partner starts saying, "Well, you could do this," yeah, 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 but you know, maybe that's really not going to work, or Kelly is as bad as I am. You know, it's very hard, you know, not to start defending yourself. Um, and I think it kind of goes back to what we were saying before about perspective taking. I think if you try to see it through the eyes of your partner as opposed to try and make yourself look good, um, which is, I think, where a lot of this stuff sometimes kind of blows up, where you're like, I'm not the bad, I'm not the bad party here, and you just sort of object to all their complaints and and minimize them and just try to defend yourself. And so if you take their perspective, you know, or even a more objective perspective, um, I think that can help in terms of not automatically objecting to everything that they raise. Yeah, no, absolutely. Does, um, there's, a, there's a really interesting lesson that uh, 
comes out of, I guess, John Gottman about the number one predictor of divorce. And you bring it up in your article, um, do not show contempt for your partner. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so contempt is obviously a certain kind of negativity, but it's an especially you know toxic kind of negativity. Um, it's really sort of making remarks that are belittling to the other person. You know, often this can be, you know, laced with sarcasm, calling your partner names, uh, just to sense it as being really mean. It's not just getting upset. It's not just complaining about stuff, but it's, it's almost showing your partner that you're kind of disgusted with them. Like, yeah. oh, I can't believe you did this again. Um, and it just, it's very hostile. It's going to make people extremely upset and defensive, and it's really not... Uh, a good way to be constructive because if you're if you're the other person and your partner's basically acting like I'm disgusted with you and it's just hurling you know sarcastic insults at you, it makes it really difficult to engage with them in a discussion. Uh, so it's you know it it just makes it that much harder for your partner, even if they're well intentioned, to even try to have a discussion with you. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's true. When you especially and and when you think about it, for it to get to that point. There's, there's, there's other issues at play, probably. Right. Yeah. It's usually an indicator. I think one of the reasons that you know that Gottman probably finds that it's such a big predictor of relationship dysfunction, divorce, is because it's a sign that things are really bad. If that's the way you interact with your partner, so I think it's, it's it kind of goes both ways. On the one hand, I think that interacting that way is very harmful, but the fact that you're even doing it suggests that things are pretty bad. Yeah. If that's your attitude, you approach, you approach your partner like, ugh, you, you're just making me sick with your behavior. Uh, that kind <laughs> of attitude suggests things are really bad. Exactly. Uh, when you're and, approaching something with that kind of attitude. And um, you can also see that it kind of leads to your next point about negativity. Don't get overwhelmed with the negativity. I guess part of the key is somehow we've got to inject a lot more positivity into the conversation than the negativity. Right, and that can, of course, be really hard to do when you're talking about a conflict. Um, you know, it's a little easier to do it on an everyday basis, uh, but it can be very overwhelming. And, you know, one of the things that, that John Gottman, that we've been talking about, uh, that he discusses is that he finds in his laboratory that couples that maintain this five-to-one ratio of positive to negative uh, interactions, statements, you know, facial expressions is during their conflict discussions tend to do much better. They tend to do better in terms of their future prognosis of their relationship, but also the conflict goes better. The people that have, um, you know, more than, uh, that don't meet that ratio, you know, so they have 50-50 positive and negative stuff going on in their discussion, the discussions tend to escalate and get worse and worse, and the negativity actually increases. I think what's really interesting about it, it's not just that, you know, ultimately the outcome isn't good. It's that the negativity breeds negativity once you get on that train, um, it keeps going and then speeding down that negativity hill in a sense um, and just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And, and then it becomes more of a problem and harder to solve the conflict. And then that leads to uh, another term called negative interpretation. So then I start seeing everything you're doing is negative, not even neutral. When we were first in love, I saw everything you did was angelic, like a gift from God. It was beautiful. You are nothing but joy. And now I can take the exact same data once I'm kind of negatively charged, and I only see things in a negative way. 
Right. I mean, there's a lot of research on that kind of thing, on these, sort of the way that you interpret stuff, because in a context as complicated as your relationship, there's always going to be multiple interpretations of things, and you can interpret everything in the best possible light or, you know, in the worst possible light. And, you know, couples that are unhappy are likely to make these kinds of attributions that, you know, sustain that unhappiness. So your partner kind of slips up and forgets to pick something up at the grocery store. And instead of being like, oh, well, I guess they had a lot of stuff on their minds. They were busy with work today. Uh, you're like, oh, this person doesn't never even consider me, doesn't think about me. Yeah, <laughs> so true. So um, also the, a really good rule, I guess, for all of us is to kind of know when to fold them when to walk away, maybe when to run. Um, what? How do we? How do we know when it's time to just take a timeout? Well, I think that if you find yourself in that escalating negativity that we were talking about, where the thing keeps getting worse and worse, and people are screaming and yelling and hurling insults, and you're not actually solving or discussing anything, um, and you see yourself in that negative pattern, that's a time for a timeout. You know, a lot of times when you're angry. You say a lot of mean things and just taking a break, taking a breather, um, letting yourself calm down a little bit can really help um, Mm. in that kind of situation. What would you say overall is the one thing? I always like to know as we wrap it up, if there's one thing we could do to make our conflicts uh, go better in our relationships, be, be more resolvable, what would you say is the one thing we should all remember? That's a tricky one. That's narrowed down to one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I would say, hmm, I thought, you know, I have to say probably two, but I would, I would say probably perspective taking because I think, I think perspective taking leads to a lot of the other good things. Like I was thinking about, uh, as I said in my article, also controlling your anger, but I think that perspective taking helps you to do that too. So it's important to control your anger, but I think if you're really able to see things from your partner's point of view, you can understand where they're coming from. It helps you solve the conflict, and it can prevent you from getting so angry at your partner. It's a great one. And again, one of the harder ones, but, but taking the place of other will help you in every endeavor in your life. Gwendolyn, thank you so much for your great work, your insights, and uh, keep up the great work there. Uh, it really, not, not an easy thing to try to take on conflict and know what to do with it. But uh, Gwendolyn's doing what she can, also there at the department, at uh, the psychology department at Albright College as well. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up hour number two of the program as we get you ready for hour number three, which, by the way, is going to be the fun uh, times with with Jeff Simpson. His his great movie reviews, spring cleaning. No. Screen blinging. Bling dreaming. Screen cleaning. Up next. Well, no, in a minute after this. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, a little empty news for you now. Uh, Empty, named after Matt Townsend, MT, not empty as if without anything in it. This is nothing but news, folks. Uh, An unsuspecting Minnesota Walmart customer takes down a startled deer, a confused white-tailed deer that wandered into a Walmart Walmart store in Minnesota, ran into a startled customer who tackled the animal to the ground. What? 
Shoppers at the store 150 miles northwest of Minneapolis speculated that the young animal was searching for a snack. Well, sure, and its mother maybe. Tuesday, when it entered in through the store, through the garden center. By the way, if you're going to have a deer enter into a Walmart, you know they're coming through the garden center. Oh, yeah. It's totally appropriate. I mean, they've been shopping. They've been eating the roses in the garden center. Either that or the hunting section. Oh, yeah. That's usually where they try to exit. (laughs) Uh, Tom Graswick said that he felt like someone had slugged him when a deer slammed into him. Graswick says the first instinct was to tackle the animal, bringing it down on a pallet of dog food. Graswick covered the deer's eyes to calm it down, and he and others took the animal outside and set it free. Well, that's nice. That's really nice. How wonderful is that? he he cared enough to take it down. And by the way, on a pile of dog food, too. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Cute. And then he was careful enough to cover the eyes. Luckily, not getting kicked in the face. Right? Boy, good job. So um, appreciate uh, we appreciate Mr. Tom Graswick, who, by the way, uh, really could be a deer wrestler. That, by the way, would be a great show. <laughs> Deer Rassler. So that would be a good show, but not we're, – we're still no on cooking with Palakiko and yeah, the no. IT guy. No, Deer Rassler would and be the, really good. And the tax man. We ought to have other things run through the Walmart and then see if this guy can wrestle them down. <laughs> like a little, a little grizzly maybe. What do you do, wrestle a snake down? It would have been different if it Don't were. kiss a snake. Don't kiss a snake. We've learned that. Also, a brazen raccoon wanders into a couple's home, helps itself to some food, rummages it through some drawers, and then terrorizes their cat. The raccoon caused chaos this week after it bowled uh, into a couple's home and uh, rifled through their drawers, terrorized their cat. The raccoon found its way into the home in northwest of London. Monday evening, late at night, Merrick Chipaniak uh, was defrosting the freezer when the animal broke into the house. The raccoon made itself at home, stole food, rummaged through their drawers. By the way, uh, if you're wondering what a raccoon would love to eat, well, Nutrigrain bars is where the the raccoon really stopped and, and started to, to nourish itself. He was low on energy. Nothing better than a Nutrigrain bar when you're really hungry. He doesn't get enough Nutris. Or grains, and he uses his little hands to open their little the little bag that their Nutrigrain bars in. Then you can just see him cute little raccoon so eating it. Maybe you had some Nutrigrain bars in your backpack when you were in Costa Rica. Yeah, that was it. Well, no, I didn't. But I, I feel bad now because this one sounds so cute. I ended up hitting my raccoon with a stick, <laughs> and I hit it hard. And he it was did, a jerk, but though. it just kept he coming was a back. Jerk. Yeah, he was rude. You know, he kept giving me the eye. Shouldn't have made that comment about your wife either. I know, totally. In her bathing suit, totally rude. Um, eventually, they 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 tried to trap it. They struggled with that. They eventually did uh, cage the animal, and the animal control came to get it. So, when in doubt, Nutrigrain it out. You just feed the trap with Nutrigrain bars. Bada boom, bada bing. Seems easy. Shouldn't we be saying Flutramain? Yeah, because yeah, we don't want to name any names. Oh, Flutramane sounds more like a, a BM product. Okay. Um, up next, spring cleaning will be here. <laughs> Jeff is going to take over the show and, and, and help you with all of your screen issues, everything that involves a screen. Screen cleaning, it's our movie show up next.
Today on Screen Cleaning, we honor heroes, fake heroes, local heroes, and as we observe Memorial Day, we honor the heroes who gave all to protect the freedoms we all enjoy in this great country. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to the show. I'm Jeff Simpson, and uh, every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, my mission, which I choose to accept, by the way, what movie, Cole, or what show? Mission Impossible. Ding, 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 ding. My mission is to help you and your family find quality entertainment to enjoy together, and hopefully you'll find some of that quality entertainment here on this very show. Each week we interview the people in the biz, we bring you exclusive trailers and commercials, and we bring you the very best in entertainment news. Speaking of which, Cole, uh, let's talk about our picks for the best entertainment news from the past week. So, uh, first of all, the best reappearance news. Are you familiar with David S. Pumpkins? All right, so you've stumped me on this. I always I try to like come a little prepared when okay. it's a Friday morning, but <laughs> when I was looking down the list, this is one that I had no idea. Okay, so back in a Halloween episode of Saturday Night Live, Tom Hanks made an appearance as a character that was just so baffling and bizarre that immediately people took to Twitter and the costume that he wears in the sketch immediately sold out on eBay and wherever else it was sold. But I believe we have a clip of that original sketch on Saturday Night Live. How's it hanging? I'm David Pumpkins. Any questions? <laughs> And apparently people didn't really have any questions. They just liked that character so much. And uh, again, like I said, the suit that which features – it's a black suit with orange pumpkins all over it. And uh, it just sold out like that. And he recently made a reappearance on Saturday Night Live in a hip-hop music video. Anyway, if you're curious to see that, go check it out. And if you haven't seen it, Cole, check out David S. Pumpkins. Sounds like I'll have to. All right. Best political candidacy, candidacy news also happened on Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you noticed this. Tom Hanks was not hosting this last week, but he did make an appearance uh, along with The Rock, who was hosting. And the two of them announced their candidacy for pre- the presidency of the United States in the year 2020. And, of course, the audience just went nuts. And we teased this. I mean, this this wasn't out of left field. We knew that The Rock was uh, considering it last week when we were going over our news. But uh, it's real. Well, it's it really happened on the show. <laughs> I don't know how real it is. I'm, I'm sure. Realer than it was last week. I'm sure The Rock is much more serious about running for office than Tom Hanks is. But, uh, oh, man, could you imagine the votes they would pull in? Mine. <laughs> and, Cole, I had to do this one. This is actually the best remake news for Cole. I made sure to put for Cole. They recent, And I'm surprised you didn't even know about this. They recently redid Dirty Dancing on ABC, and I believe we have some music from that that is probably dear to your heart. Oh, there we go. That sounds... That's awesome. That, of course, the time of my life, and in parentheses preceding that, I've had... 
Anyway, uh, yeah, they, re- they recently had it, Cole. I thought you'd be really excited to know that, so that one was just for you. And uh, unfortunately, it's not being very well received. It's got Abigail Breslin in it, whom you love. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, I guess just go watch the original again. I that's what I, that's what I'm planning on doing. There's been a lot of these remakes on television of the classic kind of musicals, whether they do them live or they seem like they could be live. It's the new fad that uh, yeah. Sound of Music ushered in. I'm not ashamed to say I've never seen the original Dirty Dancing. Oh. I'm not ashamed. All those songs. Just li- go listen to the soundtrack at least on your drive home today. Okay. It'll brighten your day. All right. Well, um, let's do this. We've got one more uh, best of that we want to share with you here. The best restaurant news. After all, going out and eating out is part of your entertainment as well. Industry Kitchen in New York is offering a wood-fired pizza that is sprinkled luxuriously with 24-karat gold leaves. White Stilton cheese is flown in from England. The foie, the foie gras and truffles are from France. Caviar is scooped from the Caspian Sea and gold leaves glitter from Ecuador. Executive chef Brolio Bunet says he was inspired to create this over-the-top indulgence by the nearby financial district, which attracts the wealthy from all over the world. It is the epitome of decadence, he said. The pizza is extremely rich. If you're in the mood for a lavish meal, this is the pizza for you. It's definitely up there in terms of the most expensive meals he's made, but preparing it in the form of a pizza makes it more approachable, he says. If you want to try this decadent delight, you need to order it 48 hours in advance. And, uh, Cole, how much would you say a pizza like this would cost? All right, so I've done some math kind of thoughts. If if Little Caesars is $5, your normal Pizza Hut Domino's, Papa John's is in like the $11, $12 range – um, and it's still just pizza. We're talking like triple, like 30 bucks for a medium, maybe. I'll tell you this. Uh, that would be closer to how much each slice would cost if it oh. were cut into eight pieces. The pizza is $2,000. <laughs> and again, you have to order it 48 hours in advance. And people are sure they don't want to just buy a used car for this price. <laughs> That's they a good point. You could pizza. do a lot with that $2,000. So we're going to play a commercial for you as we go to the commercial break about that. But uh, before that, I just wanted to tell, let you know that up next, we've got Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, who will be reviewing this weekend's biggest release, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. And he'll give us some entertainment ideas for Memorial Day weekend. Stick with us. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. A forbidden love, dancing with decadence. I look at the sun, and it says, Je touche le bleu. Indulgence. Stilton. I am gold. I am gold. I swim in the Caspian Sea, the shells sparkling, smooth to the touch. Je suis amoureux de la pizza. Don't hate me because I'm pizza. Welcome back to the program. If you hear that music, it means we're trying to class up the joint here as we head over to Rod Gustafson, our movie critic at Parent Previews, 
who uh, helps parents make informed decisions about uh, what films to show their family. And he's here with us today to talk to us about the new Pirates of the Caribbean film. And Rod, I may, I, I don't know if I can keep track of how many they've made at this point. What number is this, Rod? Well, this is number five, Jeff. But here's the skill testing question I have for you. What is the most expensive movie ever made? Oh, wouldn't it be the recent Star Wars movie they made? Didn't they spend about $250 million on that? Uh, that's ah. the no you're wrong buzzer jeff did you know <laughs> it's pirates of the caribbean on stranger tides the previous movie came out in 2011 it cost 378.5 million dollars why Can you believe it? Most expensive why movie ever oh my yeah. goodness wow yeah, yeah. and it so, didn't it's not like it made a ton of money i guess it made enough for them to make a fifth one it paid the bills. In fact, it, it crossed the billion-dollar mark thanks to the foreign box office. Yeah, million dollars overseas, only about two forty here domestically. Wow. But the reason I, the reason I bring that up is to give you just an idea of the investment that Disney has made into this franchise. These are incredibly expensive movies. This one is cheap. By Pirates of the Caribbean uh, terms, it was only $240 million, which is still an incredible amount of money. But I'm so glad they're saving money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. It, it is, I'm glad they dialed it down and went on the bargain route. So I'm just curious, you know, he's done, Johnny Depp has done five of these now. Is he phoning it in at this point or is he still putting forth his best efforts? They got him um, an, an Oscar could... nomination a few years back. Or about a decade yeah, ago. <laughs> you, when I watch Johnny in this movie, um, I think of Charlie Chaplin with a big wind-up by, you know, a key in his back. Because that's what Johnny looks like in this movie. In fact, <laughs> Johnny Depp is such a centerpiece in this movie. The directors, there were two Norwegian directors that directed this film. They They get distracted by Johnny. It seems like... You know, we start off with an opening story, an opening plot line, uh, in which uh, there's a, a young man named Henry, and he is the son of Will Turner, who was Orlando Bloom's character, and Elizabeth Swan, Kiera Knightley, from way back when. And by the way, they do have a little part, both of them, in this movie. Mm. But we open up with an inciting incident where, you know, he meets with his father, who's still one of the undead on the ship that's sunk in the sea, and the only way he can release his father from this curse is by finding the trident of Poseidon. Okay, so now we know what we're doing in the movie. We're looking for the trident. But then Johnny Depp comes on the screen and it's like everybody stops. It's kind of like those old musicals back in the 40s where the whole plot stops for the dance sequence. Well, every time Johnny's on the screen, the plot gets lost and it's Johnny's antics playing this drunken, swaggering pirate, which really, oh boy, it just, it start, it's getting tiring. It's played, it really huh? Huh. So it is for sure. Where does this one fall in, as as far as the quality goes compared to the other ones, and what do parents need to be worried about? All right, so I'll reveal my bias. I've never been a big fan of this franchise from the beginning, but the first movies did have more of a character chemistry uh, between the characters. Uh, this one really, it really just feels like uh, you know people are going through doing their thing, and that's it. So artistically. I did not find it very inspiring, very engaging, very funny. 
Um, from a parental aspect, this one has a little less of the uh, sexual innuendo going on that we had in some of the earlier movies. There's a little here, but not as much. Uh, profanity is very light, but the violence Lots and lots of violence. In fact, if Johnny isn't doing his little shtick on the screen, it's a violent battle that's going on. And over half the characters in this movie are undead. These are these are pirates who have died, but they haven't really died. So now they're in this partially decomposed state, and they're CGI, computer-generated characters, and uh, and a lot of violence between them and the real people. Now, this violence, there's not a lot of blood. We don't see a lot of tissue damage because it's a PG-13 movie, but still parents expect just battle after battle. We see people getting speared with swords and knives. We get people shot on screen. It is still quite violent, even though we don't have the explicit detail. So uh, Pirates of the Caribbean running through the motions with Johnny Depp, I believe is the subtitle. And uh, you can find out on parentpreviews.com what grade Rod gave that film. And Rod, in about the minute, minute and a half we have left, can you give us a few ideas of what families can watch together this Memorial Day weekend as we honor our veterans? Well, I'd love to. I'm going to go back and go go old school on you and tell you, go try and find Torah, Torah, Torah. I loved Torah, Torah, Torah. I still think this is such a good movie. Of course, this is the story of Pearl Harbor. And I know Clint Eastwood kind of did this a few years ago with another Japanese battle in Flags of Our Fathers and Battle of Iwo Jima, where he kind of did the Japanese side and the American side. I think a lot of people don't realize Torah, 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 they actually had a Japanese film crew do half the story and an American film crew do the other half and they bring it together. And it's a movie that you can show relatively young kids. You know, I would say the eight and over should be fine because the violence is really on a much broader scope. Uh, Another film that kind of got lost um, that might appeal to younger kids is a movie called Max. And it's about a dog who was um, fighting over in Afghanistan. He was a bomb-sniffing dog. His owner gets killed. And so Max is going to be put down because the dog has post-traumatic stress. Well, his, his handler's younger brother who lives in the United States, his family adopts the dog. And so it's kind of a fun uh, younger story that's appropriate for younger kids. And then also uh, Angelina Jolie's Unbroken. I know that this got kind of some bad reviews, but you know, still a really wonderful story, a true story about Louis Zamperini and uh, what he went through after spending 40 some odd days in a little dinghy floating in the ocean. And then he got captured by the Japanese. Another fine film that's appropriate for teen viewing. Well, Rod, as always, we really appreciate you and uh, you spending your time with us here on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Go check out those films. And later in the program, I'll be reviewing my pick for the weekend that you can enjoy together as a family in our Panning for Good segment. When we return, we'll be speaking with Stacy Harkey from Studio C. Stay with us to have a good time coming up next here on, the Ma- or <laughs> on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you are in for a treat here today because we have Stacey Harkey, who is one of the cast members of the very popular television program, a little program you may have heard of called Studio C. Hey, hey, I am super stoked to be here. So you've been with Studio C since the very beginning. 
Yes, I've been. I was just a shadow in the very beginning, like like Phantom of the Opera, like in the rafters. You kind of didn't see me, maybe did. There were hints of me. So you were the spooky guy <laughs> playing the music and wearing a, a mask. That is exactly to what hide I mean. your hideous yeah. uh, disfigurement. <laughs> But now you are you are no longer a featured player. You are a main cast member. And not only that, but you are one of the two cast members that uh, was chosen to to be one of the interviewees on the Conan O'Brien show, or Conan, if you will. Yeah, I am. I'm way more involved than I used to be now. Um, everyone's amazing. And so, I, I mean, everyone can pick up. Every, everyone's involved in heavily, obviously. But, um, yeah, I don't know how I got chosen for the for Conan O'Brien's show, but I was. <laughs> I have some theories. Like, maybe it was because it was Black History Month, and they, they were like, hey, let's, you know, let's show BYU TV's diversity. They told me that Conan decided and asked for me, which oh. is super flattering. I don't mm. believe it, though. So, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, what was that like? Was that... Totally nerve-wracking. Uh, yeah, and it's funny. If you see the video, there's, like, no way I'm hiding it. Matt <laughs> Matt and I were both pretty nervous. And you watch him, and he is just, like, at home. He looks like he was born there. And I look like I have never been on a couch before. Like, I'm just super nervous. My leg's going, like, 100 miles an hour. But I was so stoked to be there. It was, like, an excited nervous. I yeah. Hope. So I think I, I hinted at the fact that we had another Studio C cast member on the show before, and it was Matt Meese, and we had an interesting conversation about being an introvert versus being an extrovert. And he said that he considered himself uh, an introverted person. And he said, it, you know, it would probably surprise a lot of people to know that most of the of the cast of Studio C is introverted, except yep. one person. <laughs> and we've got that one person here with us today. So... You would you admit that you're an extrovert? I I would. I I will also admit that my like um when it, where I fall in the introverted extroverted spectrum is constantly changing. Really? And, yeah, I grew up incredibly shy and incredibly reserved and I was just I was an observer and a listener. I didn't really talk much to people. I would break out in sweats if I had to. And over the course of like you know, serving an LDS mission and doing security cells in Philadelphia, things like that. It really like Tommy had embraced my extroverted side. Right. So I'm kind of now I'm kind of a wild extrovert. Interesting. What is it that separates you from the other cast members as far as being extroverted being as, um, versus being an introvert? Well, beauty first off. Yes. Poise. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't really know. I think I am. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really know because I mean, I consider Matt because we were talking about this a little earlier. Yeah. I kind of consider Matt an extrovert in the sense that he has to be around people. That's where he gets his energy from. But he's not exactly like as emotive or like in your face as I am. Yeah. Like when I when you get to know me, or even when you first meet me, I don't give you a chance to accept me or not. I just throw it on you, and it's like, eh, you're, you can have this. It's like yeah. this is who I am. Well, let me ask you this: Do you think it's fair? I mean, obviously, you are are more in the public eye than anybody here at BYU Radio is because they don't they, they never see us. <laughs> You're in the public ear. Yes, I think that's the term we use. Yeah. In the end. I'm just <laughs> and especially in a place like Provo, mm -hmm. um, you I'm sure you get hounded all the time either for autographs or for pictures or hey, do such and such a character. Do you think it's fair for people to? And this isn't to say anything bad about, you know, your fans or anything like that. But do you think just in general, do you think it's fair for somebody to be able to just expect you to turn on this uh, switch and just say, perform for me right now? 
Um, that's a really, really good question. And I will say that my experience with Studio C, and especially as, as it's been growing and drawing more attention, it has made me understand why Britney Spears like shaved her head. And like went like kind of crazy because it is you lose so much privacy. And I do think and this is this might come out weird, but I do think it is fair for people to to because, you know, they, they people they barely see you. They see you once. They, they're just really excited about it. And they don't realize that we get this all the time, that we rarely get the time to to finish a meal without people interrupting us sometimes. Yeah. And so I think on the other end, it's, it's fair for people to ask that, but I also think it's fair for you to set boundaries. And, um, and I think I'm probably one of the best at that too in the cast, which probably helps. I'm the best at saying, Hey, I appreciate this so much, but right now is not a good time. Yeah. And, and most of the time people understand. Sure. And they're super, they're super cool. But every now and then you get people that are just like, well, I still want you to sign my daughter's shoe. <laughs> I told one lady once, I was like, I'm super late for a meeting and I don't really have time. And she was like, really? Really? And I was like, yes, I'm not, I'm not joking. And we do, as, we do as much as we can, but sometimes you just have to draw boundaries and say, man, like there was a time when we were at a restaurant with a friend who was mourning the loss of a, of a, of a Ooh, close, close friend. Yeah. And you know what I mean? It's one of those moments where it's like, that's not a good time for us to be taking pictures and signing stuff. And and people seem to understand, but that was just we just have to be we have to be willing to draw boundaries and say not right now is not a good time. That's good. That's good. And uh, th- see, that is something that would be very difficult for me. Um, it's tough. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because it seems like this sort of thing wouldn't really happen in another profession. You know, like. What if there was like a math teacher and somebody went up to him and was like, "Hey, hey, you know that you know that equation you did in class? Could you could you like pull it out for us right now and start doing it?" Yeah, it doesn't happen with other professions, it's true. but it, you know, good for you for being a good sport about it. And uh, yeah, there, like you said, there is some truth to it that. If all these viewers didn't start watching Studio C, then you probably wouldn't yeah. be having the job and, that you ever know. And it's kind of a, a good problem. And some people love the limelight and love that kind of attention. I don't think anyone in Studio C really thrives on that kind of attention. Sure. But the fact that people love the show and as a result want to – are excited to see us is that's – a, that's a good problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not bad. So is this something that you've always wanted to do? I mean you said you were used to be shy, but what if – I mean – I'm not talking about like being a 10-year-old boy and saying, I want to be a fireman, you know. I'm just saying, what is it, you know, as you got older and started to recognize your strengths, what is it that you wanted to do and is this it? Well, um, I never considered comedy one of my strengths, ever. I came into BYU um, wanting to find a major that was good for law school. That was my mm. plan was to, yeah, to, to practice law. And so I, I ended up studying PR, which was reading like research and writing intense. And I was really excited about that. But I, I ended up auditioning for this comedy group for a friend. He asked, he was like, I'm really nervous. I want to do it. Will you do it with me? And I was like, uh, I want to be supportive. So yes. And it ended up changing my life in the wildest of ways. It was Divine Comedy, which you yeah. were in. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, I can't, I, it's, I totally just give credit to a, to a greater being that knows what's up. It's yeah. not me. <laughs> That is cool. Um, so what would you say, I mean, you've played dozens of characters and, you know, you've you've been this amazing cast of really funny people. Uh, what it, what would you say are some of your more favorite sketches that you've done? Oh, my goodness. Some of my favorite sketches are the fans' least favorites, which I don't <laughs> mind. Um, there was one I – well, one of my faves is the Be Still My Heart sketch where the girls are at the mall and they're seeing these cute guys that have like something really weird and off with them like Stephen has a face in his stomach, something really weird like that. <laughs> um, but 
for me, I was the first guy where from the back, like my shoulders and stuff, I look very like brawny and like strong. And then I turn around and I'm just a total goofball. But what the reason I love that is because they gave me, <laughs> I show up on set ready to play the hot guy from the back, you know, and they had a, a a double. They had some dude come and play the good looking dude from the back. <laughs> so oh. that was, it was, uh, it was Sad, but mostly funny. Like, I was so entertained by that. It cracked me up. But that sketch turned out wonderful, and I love it. So fun. Are there any sketches that you guys have done that turned out to... You got laughs out of moments that you weren't expecting it. Oh. Um, anytime someone messes up. Yeah. That's an unplanned laugh. When they break... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it happens often. And that's why we, man, we really love the live audience feel. With the, like, the Divine Comedy, the Studio C, where it's like... You perform your sketches in front of people, and you have this amazing joke that you're so stoked about that no one laughs at. And it's a time for you to swallow your pride and be like, all right, maybe that's not that funny. Let's change that. Or um, you have a moment where they laugh at something, and you're like, I did not see that coming. Mm -hmm. I wish I could think of an example of one of those. And then you milk it at that point. (laughs) You just, for all it's worth, you just stay on that gag for, you just, yeah. (laughs) Just kidding. So I I know that fans of the show might be interested in hearing about maybe some behind the scenes stories or something that was funny that happened that wasn't, that wasn't seen on screen or in front of an audience. Mm, Let's see. So for our live shows, we do lip sync battles. Yes. And, um... (laughs) <laughs> and Mallory um, always she has this Michael Jackson man in the mirror we can't air it because of copyright right yeah but um, she does Michael Jackson's man in the mirror and she has every slight little like oh ah, she has every little tick and tweak <laughs> and it is golden it's so funny and it's one of those things where we had we had some of the executives come the higher ups and they were like we, we want people to see this but we're always stuck with copyright yeah which is fair mm. totally fair so just one one more question before we take a break here. Um, so I'm just curious to know who some of your influences are, like oh, what man. you watch that uh, that really inspires you. I I grew up watching, and this is this is so funny. I I never considered myself a comedian, but I love 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 comedy. I grew up watching uh, stand up. I would just watch stand up for just for hours on TV and uh, sketch comedy, Mad TV, SNL. Now we have Key and Pill, which all these shows are. It's they're very much like when it comes to quality and cleanliness, it's just you never know what you're going to get. And it's always a crapshoot, you know. And so um, it, it's so awesome to have a chance to create sketch comedy or comedy period that people can watch and not have to worry about. Is this going to be something I'm, I feel bad watching or something that I wouldn't watch with my family? Right. So, yeah. Oh, because we've all been in those situations where we're watching something that we think is really funny, but maybe we forget about this one part and somebody's mom or grandma is in the room and it's <laughs> the most mortifying experience you can have. Anyway, but yeah, that's, you know, one of the reasons I had you on the show is because we really, on the show, we, we really tried to put a spotlight on, on good entertainment. Oh, thank and, you. And uh, we, we count you as, as part of that uh, mission to, to bring good entertainment to the world and be able to watch a show finally with your grandma that you don't yeah. have to squirm. <laughs> um, but Stacy Harkey, let's do this. Let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, I want to do something really interesting with you because we know that the, the motto here on BYU Radio is talk about good. 
So you and I are going to watch a film, a different film, and we're going to focus on the good and not the bad. Oh. In a little segment we like to call Silver Lining Cinema, when we return, this is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm super blessed to be joined here today by Stacy Harkey of Studio C fame. And he is gracious enough to partake in this little experiment that we have coming up right now. Something that we like to call Silver Lining Cinema. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. We're each going to watch a film that pretty much everybody else in the entire world would consider bad and horrible and unwatchable. And we're going to do our darndest to talk about the good in these films and to just focus on the positive. So we've got this uh, spinning wheel uh, here that's full of films that other people would consider just horrible, unwatchable, no good. So, Stacy, you're my guest. I'm going to spin the wheel first here for you. So let me just give it a spin here. So it looks like you are going to be watching a little film called Nuki. Ooh, okay. Nuki. Nuki. So, okay, let's spin it once here for me. And it looks like I will be watching Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Oh. We'll watch them. We'll come back. And we'll give our positive review for Nuki and Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. And we're back. I'll give you my review of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, and then we'll hear from you about Nuki. So this movie, back in 1964, spent $200,000 to make this movie. And let's just say it really shows. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I am all for saving as much money as you possibly can. And right off the bat, it becomes very apparent that they were also very interested in saving money. Nice. Uh, You know, the... Mars, it's full of these these rocks and scenery that it's clearly paper mache. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Martians have these hats that have this um, the sink piping that represents uh, uh, their antennae. Oh, and so clearly it looks like a bunch of families got together and just put together these costumes and the sets. You can tell that there were a lot of good family nights that went into this film. Little Johnny got to make some of those rocks. And it's full, and I mean just full, of stock footage of, you know, ships and rockets taking off. And I'm totally okay with that because it's there. Why not use it? it just, why yeah. go? Why shoot all this new footage when you have all this great footage that's just sitting there on the shelf that nobody's going to use? Um, there's, there's a shot of a uh, of a spaceship that looks like it's just a baked potato wrapped in foil <laughs> on a wire but that's a good thing because it allows us to not be distracted by all this CGI and to just be able to focus on the story. And who now, doesn't like potatoes? Right. So getting to that story, the story of Santa Claus conquers the Martians. 
Martians kidnap Santa Claus mm. so that their kids can have presents on Christmas. And the reason they do this is because they see their kids watching all these Earthling programs on television and it's rotting their brains. Mm. So they want their kids to be able to play with these toys and get out and be more active. So they kidnap Santa Claus. And again, great messages. Don't watch as much TV. Get outside. Play with yeah. toys. That's, all good messages. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Let's talk about the casting. Ooh. There's a scene where they go, the Martians, they go and consult this 800-year-old Martian. And you would think, okay, they're just going to get some really super old guy to play this. Which, you know, old people get all the roles these days. They, all the old people roles. They get them. So they took a middle-aged man, slapped some makeup on him and said, you know, talk in this really screechy, high-pitched voice. And they let they finally gave a role to a middle aged man. I love that. Yeah, so much. No, no typecasting. It. I love no. that. No, I love how accessible Santa Claus is in this. The movie starts out with a TV reporter okay. going to the North Pole, knocking on Santa Claus's workshop, wow. uh, the door, and uh, just has like this five seems like maybe ten or twenty minute interview that just really goes on and on. And it just shows to me that Santa Claus is really accessible. Yeah, and I like that. I love that. I love that. There's a polar bear that, that looks like it's going to grab these children at one point of the movie. But it's clearly just a man in a polar bear suit. You always see those messages at the end of the film that says, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. I saw that and I knew without even having to see that disclaimer, no animals were harmed in the making of this film because no animals were used in the making of this film. That's awesome. And then one other thing that I think I would mention is um, there's this robot that they enlist the help of to try to capture these children who have mm-hmm. who have escaped. And it looked exactly like a robot I made when I was in third grade. That is so charming. I <clears throat> Okay, I, I'm okay now. Yeah, that, that is It awesome. took me back great memories. Anything that can make me feel good about my childhood. <sighs> anyway, Stacy, now I'm curious to know what you thought of a little film that you watched called Nuki. Nuki. Well, first off, not such a little film. It's a very... Very, very long film in the sense of... Or maybe it's a little film with a big heart. There we go. I think that's the best way to put it. Nuki, made in 1978. It's a South African-German film. Basically, the plot is two lovely aliens. Um, <laughs> they're brothers. They, something happens, and they crash land in, on Earth. One gets crash lands in America. Mm-hmm. The other one crash lands in Africa. And uh, pretty much the whole movie is they're trying to find each other. And they um, elicit the help of of scientists that are experimenting on the one, the evil corporate scientist in America that that he wins over, um, as well as the tribal people. And they end up meeting together. And so first and foremost, Nuki is a beautiful story of friendship and family. One thing I did love about this movie, um, and I, I guess I learned to love this about the movie, is that there were there were no rules. I mean – most films find themselves adhering to a rigid plot that makes sense and flows in a structure that you can almost predict sometimes. It's more of a hindrance than yeah, anything. I mean, yeah. it's just you guess it and you're like, this is the end of the movie. Yeah. Nuki? You couldn't do that with Nuki. You, <laughs> there was no way to, to guess where the plot was going and you were, you were just uh, – it kept you on your toes the whole time. For example, there's a clip where um, Nuki in Africa – falls into a river 
and this raging river that's leading to a waterfall, and you're like, oh no, what's going to happen? And instantly, you see this shot of this giant anaconda python thing slither in the water, and you're like, that's coming after him. Nope, he just falls off the waterfall edge. Python never comes back into the story. It's very, very free structure. The rules of of movies, like, you know, you normally establish a rule um, and you follow it, like, be it in this universe, gra- like gravity. You're like, oh, is gravity a thing here? Yes. And if it is, you follow that rule. Here they had animals that some spoke, some didn't. No rules. This, this is Nuki in Africa. We don't need rules. Some people were speaking an African language, and then all of a sudden they were speaking English. At one point, he could fly. Another point, he can't. He's he's doing magic. He can't. It's just you don't know where Nuki is going. It was uh, quite the adventure. It's unpredictable. Uh, completely yeah. unpredictable. You want something that's going to really just just twist and turns at every corner? Nuki, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I will say, too, when it comes to, like, production – you normally get these – and like nowadays you get this a lot where it's everyone's into computer anim- computer graphics, computer animation. Everything looks a little unrealistic or at least it feels so. Um, Nuki really mastered that style from the 80s where it was kind of using puppetry. Master's a strong word. You, Nuki really used the style from the 80s where it was puppetry. You know, even Steven Spielberg in Jurassic Park had the like the practical dinosaurs there where they could touch it and it wasn't just put in later. Um, Nuki and his brother were – totally these puppet creations um they were they were honestly terrifying <laughs> so little, i'm kind of a pansy when it comes to scary movies in the first shot i was like do i need do i need to turn the lights on <laughs> and i think nuki really reserved a little spot near my heart maybe nuki taught me to love again yeah i'm so glad well this has been this edition of Silver Lining Cinema to another two great films that most people would not call great, but we found a way to find the greatness in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians and Nuki. Stacy Harkey from thank Studio you. C, thank, thank you. you so much for being on Screen thank you for Cleaning. Having me. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson, and uh, it's my privilege now to talk to a couple of our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. And today, it's Spencer Linton and Brian Jordan. Did I get that right? Brian Jordan, is that your last name, Brian? Uh, No. <laughs> I mean... Jerem Jordan. Oh, goodness. It can be. Whatever you want. Uh, it's your world. Forgive me. Forgive me. <laughs> Spencer's just checked out. He's so offended that I didn't get your name right. So You just called Brian the wrong name. <laughs> Brian jo- I'm Brian Jordan today. Oh, my goodness. I'm so. being affected by the Costco <laughs> hot dog that I ate yesterday still, almost 24 hours later. Oh, and by that you mean like you were enjoying your hot dog and then you saw me come up to you and you started choking on your hot dog at the shock <laughs> and disappointment of seeing me <laughs> during your lunch hour. Wow. Well, I wasn't going to take it that far, but you said it, so I'll hop on board. So I, 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 I wasn't sure, but I were you guys? Looks like you came right from the show to Costco. Is that true? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Makeup on. You guys looked great, though. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, makeup, right? 
Yeah. No, it was good to see you, and it was good to know that I'm not the only one that enjoys a bargain. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. You can't beat a hot dog and a drink and a for a buck sixty-two. Yeah, and if you add a churro, it goes up to like two fifty. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like ice cream, it goes up like ten more cents. Okay. <laughs> so important question: <laughs> ten more cents. Important question: All beef or Polish? Uh, depends on where I get my hot dog, but Costco specifically, I'm an all beef guy. Yeah, me too. Really? I'm a, yes. I'm a, beefy, I'm a beefy guy as well. Whoa. Got to feed the biceps. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> so it was great to see you yesterday. And I don't know if you guys have been listening to the show. We just had a little segment that I'm hoping to do with you guys at some point called Silver Lining Cinema, where we have this big wheel of horrible, bad, unwatchable movies, according to most people. Ooh. And we spin it, and whatever it lands on, my guest has to watch one. I have to watch a different one. And whatever it lands on, we have to watch that film and give it a positive review since this is BYU Radio Talk About Good. Wow. This is probably your best idea ever, Jeff. So I had to review ever. a film <laughs> called uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Oh, my goodness. That's what? And Stacy Harkey from Studio C, he reviewed a little film called Nuki. Hmm. Which is basically just a blatant ripoff of the film E.T. Okay. <laughs> you need to throw in The Last Airbender there, too. I'd love to hear your oh, take on that movie. Maybe. So I'm thinking maybe we'll have you guys do that with us one time, but we'll do a sports edition. Like, I've got a whole oh, yes. whole yes. slew of films starring just Hulk Hogan that we could do. We could even have a Hulk <laughs> Hogan category in itself. Can we throw in Shaquille O'Neal? Oh, he's on there. He's Shazam. got two films on there Shazam. at least. I like Shazam, actually. There's Shazam and Shaq Steel. Boo. <laughs> you can give you can give me this example. So like, is, there's a difference between bad acting and like a bad movie. Like that's a good movie. Like if you if you replace Shaq and maybe come with like a 2017 version of it, man, that's gonna be like that's gonna be up there in a lot of child's, <laughs> childhood memories. But you got to replace Shaq because Shazam, Shazam. No, no, no. It's Kazam. Oh, Kazam. Oh, Kazam. Yeah. yeah. Shazam. So Shazam's like a like, like a, word, a like oh Shazam. Yeah, that's like an infomercial. Like. Yeah, plug or something. I thought of you guys too. I think it's grease, by the way. Yeah. A little bit. Shazam! It's gone. I just remember <laughs> that movie coming out as a kid because I loved the scene in the previews where he, uh, one of the wishes the kid makes is to have all this candy appear. And Max, so it's just like raining right? candy. Max. Yeah. So I thought of you guys too when I went to the movies the other day. I went to go see uh, King Arthur and the Legend of the Sword, I think it was what it was oh, called. Is that good? I enjoyed it. Um, I know it got trashed by the the critics, but there was one scene where this guy starts talking to Charlie Hunnam, telling him to pull the sword out of the stone. And uh, I do a double take, and I'm like, is that David Beckham? What in the world? So David Beckham in medieval times in this film, uh, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. So you guys ought to check it out. Wow. David Beckham. And then he kicked a soccer ball across the, yeah. (laughs) Bend it like Beckham. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that was just a little bit of what was on our show. What's going to be on your show coming up here in six minutes and 53 seconds? Oh, I don't know if we can top that, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But we're going to try, right? How about this? It's all about where you finish things in life, right? Not how you start. 
Now, it doesn't it doesn't matter where you start. It's about where you're going and where you finish. And for BYU football, they are starting, according to VegasInsiders.com, ranked in the top 25, number 24. Okay, Ooh. that's fantastic, right? Shazam. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Shazam. <laughs> BYU's ranked to start the season, according to one random Vegas poll. Mm-hmm. But it's Vegas, though. So How do they, they be- finish ranked? And specifically, we think it comes down to the month of September. Wait, there are 13 games, and they go through essentially December. So why is September so important for BYU to finish ranked for the first time in a very, very long time? Do you remember the month of September? I was shocked when I reminded myself of the last time BYU finished a season ranked. I was shocked. Can you tell us? No. Ah. I'll tell you on the show. All right, all right, all right. Got to listen to the show. Yeah, I got to try, I got to try, right? The cool Canadian Greg Rebell, <laughs> radio voice of the Cougars, is going to join us today. Always a good time. How many cool Canadians do you have on your show? We have Rod Gustafson, who's our movie critic from Parent Previews that is on the show frequently. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's cool. You don't have no, uh, you don't have Drake or Justin Bieber like we do in our ears. Just, you know, but we cool Canadians. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, Greg Rebell, Radio Voice of the Cougars, always a good time uh, with Gregory. And Steve Cleveland, the former BYU head basketball coach, will join us to talk about what in the world is happening with the direction of the BYU basketball program now that Eric Mika is gone to the NBA draft and they have a new assistant coach, his good friend Heath Schroyer. Like, what has happened in the two weeks that Heath has been here? So, mm, good stuff. That's coming, coming up. Ah, uh, Well, Spencer Linton and Brian Jordan today. Um, <laughs> why don't you go do your show and uh, bend it like Beckham and Shazam? Brian Jordan. Or Shizzle. <laughs> Brian Jordan, didn't he play baseball for the Atlanta Braves or something? Mm. Sounds about right. He's, a, he's the third co-host. <laughs> All right, guys. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Have a good Jeff. show. Talk to you later. All right. Oh, that was embarrassing to get your guest's name wrong. Anyway, they'll forgive me, I'm sure. They have to because we talk once a week here on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. So earlier in the program, Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com gave us a few ideas of films that we could enjoy together as a family uh, that can help us honor Memorial Day. And he told us, Torah, Torah, Torah. Sounds like one too many Torahs for me. Um, He said, Unbroken. And then he also said the film Max about that dog. It's a dog movie. It's PG, though. And I promised that I was going to give you my pick, uh, and this is going to be our panning for good segment for today. There's good in them dire hills. (laughs) So, Cole, I want you to uh, press play on this song here, this next song, and I want you to guess what this film is before I spoil what it is. Matt Townsend just walked in the room. I'm wondering if he can guess what film this is from. Some classic music, too. You can't hear it? Sorry, I don't have So you're definitely not going to get this one right. Just take a guess. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's from Star is Born with Barbra Streisand. Ooh, not a Memorial Day film, but good guess. Good guess. There are a lot of stars in this film. Cole, you probably know what it is because you've got the setup sheet, but uh, have you ever seen this film? I have, and I definitely recognize this music. I mean, this is up there with the 2001 Space Odyssey kind of music 
as far as recognizability. I think Don Shaline Don came running in the room because he heard the music. Hey, 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 hey. He loves this film, I'm sure. Yes, I do. This, growing up, this was my favorite film of all time. It probably still is. It, it was close for me. It, it was a close second to Mad Mad World. Oh, that's another good one. Yeah. Uh, you didn't put enough mads in that title, I though. Know. <laughs> I know. I usually truncate that. It's a Mad 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 World. Oh, that was too many. So, yeah. um, Great Escape. Great, great escape. movie. Yeah. Um, Steve McQueen, throwing the baseball, riding yeah. the motorcycle. Now, I know that we, we tend to idolize or, or really look up to movie stars um, which is, seems kind of fitting this weekend as we look up to and honor uh, people that have served our country. And, you know, obviously they've provided more. Their, their contributions have been much greater than, say, Steve McQueen's and James Garner. But I just remember as a kid thinking how cool Steve McQueen was, especially in the scene when he jumps those barbed wire oh, fences yeah. on his motorcycle. You want him to make it, too. Yes. You want him to clear Yes. It. I've read the book, too, and uh, just an amazing story. Of, well, it's based on a true story. It, yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. Yeah. And it's these prisoners of war in uh, a Nazi Germany camp who decide that they're going to tunnel out of this camp, and they name the three tunnels that they start digging Tom, Dick, and Harry, Mm -hmm. and uh, just an edge-of-your-seat film. And uh, who would have guessed that uh, seeing a bunch of grown men, you know, scuttle across the the dirt floor trying to get out of a prison would be so exciting, but it is. And uh, that list of stars, though. Oh, my gosh. Steve McQueen. Okay. James Garner. Yeah. Richard Attenborough. James Coburn, um, Charles Bronson. Yeah, Donald Pleasance. Remember Donald him? Pleasance. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So it's not a star is born. Sorry, Matt, but uh, plenty of stars in this film. Go check it out. It's a great film that you can watch with your families. It's family-friendly and a great way to remember the great men and women who have served this country and continue to do so to this day. Well, we've had a great time here on the show. Again, we're here every Friday to give you the best in entertainment news. And this is a slice of the entertainment that you're going to get each and every week here on Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next week. 